You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. What are you doing in Durango? So this is home. This is like, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just day by day waiting to be buried here. <laughs> I've been, uh, I was traveling for like almost five months and I'm just I don't know I, I didn't realize that I was homesick I don't think I actually was but then coming back here and kind of like sliding back into the flow of things it just like it I don't know it, it amplifies the energy that I have for the life that I want to live anyway just living here and just it's like the air man I mean, I posted on Instagram yesterday it feels like everything here just kind of radiates with this like pure invisible light of just like oh you know just kind of like constantly just just fuels what i want to do and yeah so durango's home i mean this is this is the ultra house durango here so hmm. it's just like it's my place but it's open to everybody and you know we got a we got a badass sauna and a stream that goes in the backyard that's ice cold and just access on all sides i got a sense that you were very nomadic i didn't realize you had a home base I've been traveling for long enough, so there's definitely that. But yeah, yeah, no, man, the home the home base is where it's at. This has been Durango's the dream. I kind of I kind of grew up moving regularly, and so like always the new kid, and never really had like family roots or a reason to stay anywhere. And so at some point, I was just like, well, I'm gonna get out to Colorado. That seems to be the place to be. And yeah, slowly made my way into the mountains, and then found Durango, and Durango's just next level. I mean, it's 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 the best place in the universe in my book. So this is, this is the home base and it's a humble little, humble little hut out here, but it'll do. When did you find Durango? Mm, it was like 20, 2016. Is that when you first crossed paths with Hunter or did you guys meet elsewhere? No, he was actually his Durango era and mine. I don't think overlapped. I'm not oh, sure. Okay. So yeah, I, I really just, but Miguel Medina is still out this way. Oh, you, you know him through Miguel? Out this way again. So, yeah, I know Hunter through Miguel. Okay. And then, yeah, man. And then, you know, I'm always trying to, like, host people at my place and just, you know, show off what, what makes this the best thing ever and, and just kind of, like, put it on people's maps. I mean, there's it's outrageous to have to go somewhere and train and, you know, pay 100 bucks a night just because you need a kitchen or, or more, right? Right. And so especially in a town like this where it can be spendy. So I just, I really like putting it on everybody's map and being like, Hey, just, you know, crash on my floor. If you have to park a van out front, like use an extra bedroom if I got it open. And so when Hunter made that post, like, Hey guys, I'm training my butt off up in the mountains, come train with me. I couldn't leave somebody hanging. Right. I couldn't leave somebody that's, that's doing the same thing and, and sharing the same dream. And so, you know, it's great. He's slowly fallen in love with that little mountain town he's in. And it's, mm -hmm. it's great to see anyone else that loves, that loves where they live that much. I mean, it's like, I don't know if you guys know Barefoot Ted out in Santa Barbara, but like the dude is obsessed with, like it's Barefoot Ted from Born to Run and the dude's obsessed with Santa Barbara. He's like, oh man, Anthony, like you gotta check out, look at, look at this sand and look at this mountain and look at, oh, this, this terrain is just perfect. Like this is just the perfect place to be barefoot. And it's like, he's just like spinning this carnival ride of energy for the place that he lives. And that's, that's kind of, you know, to see that on somebody else and kind of be able to flaunt that for my own circumstance. It's, it's ideal, man. Is, uh, is that pretty typical for you to just pick up and just bolt like whenever you need to? Yeah, basically, basically I, I met this girl in 
like November 1st and we started like, I don't know, romantically clicking like three, four days later. And I was like, Hey, do you want to go to Moab? A nice long courtship. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and then like what November 7th was the Moab trail marathon. I was like, Hey, I'm going to go to Moab this weekend. And she's like, yeah, let's go. So like she crewed me for a race. I was, yeah. So I'm going to go to DC in like three weeks. You know, I'll just panhandle to a sponsor. Do you want to join? Like I could use crew anyway. Um, yeah, let's go. I've, you know, I've wanted to go to DC. Let's do it. And so left and went to DC and then she was kind of like, Hey, this is this, maybe this is going somewhere, but I was planning on just splitting to Hawaii for a while and buying up some land on the big Island. And you know, this, this seems to be going somewhere, you know, I don't, I don't really know what that's going to do. And I just said, well, I'm going with you then. Like I, I can, I can go down there. I can train. Um, I'll make connections down there and I'll just train in the rain for a little while. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's where I've been. I was there from before February 1st until after June 1st, I was in Hawaii. Wow. So you have no reservations. There's a training spot, you get out and you go. Yeah. I mean, if I can, if I can put in my training volume and sustain the life that I want to put in, then, then yeah, that's, that's kind of the idea, right? It's like, I think a lot of professionals in, in a lot of fields could do that, that same, that same kind of, you know, nomadic lifestyle to your point of just kind of get up and go. But that's, that's one of the perks of being a runner is I can, I can run anywhere. And so, you know, running on the beach and running the, in the soil. And I'm someone that I, I think the, the place that you live and the place that you train ultimately determines the type of runner you are. And it's, it's almost a two way street here where you're going to be drawn to the things that you're good at, but then you're going to be good at the things that you're drawn to. And then you're going to, you're going to live in a place that feels good and you're going to train in a place that feels good. And it's kind of like, it's kind of this, I don't know, this reciprocity here between the races that you're going to, that you're going to want to be drawn to and that you can prep for where you live. And it's kind of this little dance going on. And so being able to go to a new place and obviously living in Durango, I'm obsessed with mountains and, and just like the red rock and the blasting sun and, and just high, high mountains and getting up there and, and just smelling dust. And it's just, you know, it, it's amazing that every, every single part of it is, I, I love it. And being down there and like circumna- circumnavigating Kilauea, which is just the, whatever, one of the most active volcanoes in the world. And so seeing like a mountain being built, right. It's like, it's like a mountain in its infancy or a mountain being born. It's kind of a trip. Right. And so it was kind of, it kind of felt right. It kind of felt like it was preordained almost of it was coming full circle and it was making me reappreciate that, that these mountains are, they're alive. Right. Or at least they were. So it's, it's awesome, man. I mean, there, there's something to that of, while I do love where I am and that this is the home base and it feels good coming home. It is really cool to, to kind of re up your own, you know, my own Durango citizenship card or something. Aren't those, uh, aren't those mountains, they're, they're old mountains, technically, aren't they here? They're shrinking in general. Isn't that, isn't that right? Yes. He's not in Kilauea, though. Huh? He's talking not Kilauea. Oh, Kilauea. right, right, right. Yeah, yeah that's, out, that's way out west. I honeymooned on the Big Island, and we, my wife's a runner, so we ran Kilauea and all that. And, we, and that was a timely point for us where, like, you could see the lava it just goes right over the the asphalt and like yeah. that mountain being born, you know, on the honeymoon, new life starting. We had that similar interesting experience right. there where you, you go there because it's tropical and you can snorkel and scuba dive and honeymoon. But running kind of ties you to a place a little bit differently than tourist does. Tourism. Absolutely. So do you, um, 
one, I always get like a twinge of envy when I, I hear this like nomadic lifestyle. It's always like in my like back of my head, I always want to be able to do that. So when I hear somebody doing that, um, I'm, I'm mildly envious, we will call it. I think it's like a bit of a dream in a sense, being able to kind of come and go as you please. But then I always wonder like, do you work? How do you get by? What's the setup there? Like, how do you balance all of that? Like, I, I need to play, but I also need to uh, focus at times. Like, what are you doing to balance it all out? Um, I don't know if balancing it out is really the right word, but but how to feed myself is a good question. I can start there, maybe. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. So I do I do a lot of a lot of writing at this point in my life. So like making making content. Um, that's that's always a good way to go. A, a lot of writing. Um, like I, I write a Patreon right now. So that's, that's more just a hook to keep me making the content that I wanted to make anyway. Um, I got a book that I'm working on. I'm like a total nerd and, um, I've slowly put all this stuff together and realized that it's not kind of like sharing my own house. It's not, it gets better sharing it, but it's not stuff that you have to be an elite athlete to benefit from. So it's like if people see the stuff that I'm doing and the tools that I'm using, it's it's good and that's that's great to share and so i'm kind of doing a a written version of that same thing you know not everyone can to your point kurt like not everyone can drop their lives and just come live with me for a week to see to see like how it's done here and so for the people that can it's nice to kind of articulate that and put all that out there but that's obviously peanuts it's like and even that it's like i'd like to drop a running log this coming year um like drop a book this coming year but in the past it's been like i probably do more than a blog post a month average so that's like you know that might be that might be 300 bucks that might be 800 bucks um and that's enough to like feed my my body right it's like that that'll screw me by and then I, ha- I had a good season or two and i had a i had a youth team going on in golden colorado before i moved out here so i had a had a little bit of, of cash socked away and like a youth running team that is and so I own my little 1,300 square foot double wide trailer here in Durango. So like when I wanted to go to Hawaii, I had a buddy saying, ah, I'm actually probably going to stay in Durango this winter. I'm, I'm thinking I need to like get my bearings. I said, here's the deal. You're going to rent my room. You're going to manage the other two rooms. And we're both going to make out like bandits. So it was like, you know, I had, I had three rooms that were rentable while, the whole time I was gone. And while they weren't always rented the whole time, it's like, that's a nice little side hustle that didn't really cost me anything to get into other than having good credit and, and, you know, having, having some hookups occasionally getting lucky. Right. You, uh, not to cut you up, but you piqued my interest and I bet you you piqued Bracken's interest on a number of levels, but one, we have pushed the running log on our listeners, probably at nauseum, at least for a certain point. You're looking for yours, aren't you? Uh, well, I don't, I don't ever have to look that hard. Hey, yeah. Hey, check it out. Look at arms reach. Right. But here's the beef, right? This yeah. sucks. Oh, wait, oh, wait. Good. There it is. Three for nice. three. What? Wait, wait. You guys, are, are you holding the same one up? We're holding the same exact one. Oh, come so, on. So, however many yeah. of these he sells per year, I need to steal these sales. Because it's not very good. There's so many throwaway, like, hey, minimal or maximal shoes. Neither one of them are going to stop injury. And then literally the next page, it's like, Hey, if you want to avoid injury, increase your cadence. It's like, you know what does that? Minimal shoes. <laughs> like, Well, that's so right. That guy has to sell. So what we're holding up is like the runners, what day-to-day log. It, it has a yearly, has that year, it's a yearly thing that comes out. I think I have like 15 of them now and they're all filed away so I can look at historical records. When you, say, when you say you're going to uh, write 
or, or maybe create a running log. Now I want to know like, okay, we just both held up our running logs, Bracken held up yours. What would be different about yours? Because I'm apathetic about my running log, but it's a space to write, right? So like, yeah. yeah. What, what would you include or how, what would that look like? So I really think like there's a lot of things that, that I've put together over the last few years, you know, supplements that I think work and, and like ideas like rotating shoes, right? Like you got a, you got a sexy wall of shoes behind you. It's like I, I wear and I, I log all my shoes, right? And then we can all kind of agree the psychology of a handwritten log is its, is its own entity here. And it's like I have a lot, of, a lot of data in this sport that people deserve to be able to yay or nay to. It's like you can, you can take it or leave it. That's on you. But I've spent a lot of time and a lot of thought and a lot of research and schooling to find the things that I think work. And it's like, you know, shoe rotation is a good example of that. You know, if you have pain, if you have pain below the knee, wear some cushion. If you have pain above the knee, wear less cushion. You know, that's that's actually spread around a decent amount. But it's like putting that into words, articulating it, and and putting just some of my own stuff. Like, oh, also go ahead and just get 1,200 plus miles out of a pair of shoes. Like, why not? And so putting all that into a log, and then it's it's the same idea. It's a similar format to what, what is it, Jerome? Marty Jerome did with those logs. But it's like, it's not all that different. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm at the same point as you are where I don't really, I don't really use that log for any of the written content in that log, you know, and I'm, and I'm willing to pay whatever he wants to ask the 15 bucks a year to have that log when I am, you know, kind of hostile towards some of the information in there. And then some of the information that's just like, ah, it's just a throwaway, right? It's just like, oh, okay. And so I think I can put all the stuff that I've kind of, that I've kind of put together and that's one of the things that I'm doing on my Patreon now is I'm just doing monthly posts about here's a bunch of ideas that I would potentially put in a log for the month of May or for the month of January. Here's how to kick off the year and, you know, setting some some like different types of goals and things that I do and things that I've settled on from having a handwritten running log for, you know, well over a decade. And I would just like to reformat the way that we look at this and try to make it, you know, more approachable for people but also just kind of have some of those fun, like some of that fun data that may or may not be total crap. Even it's just like, like stick myself out there and say, this is something that I did. This is how I tried it for a season. And a lot of my like ideology, I don't think it's that I'm right. I think it's the the path that I'm on is the right path. And so I think a lot of people, you know, you look at something and especially the fitness industry, there's, there's so many people talking and there's so little information and there's so little that actually really works. And so I think putting, putting my neck out and saying, actually, yeah, this works, this works, this works. And here's how I decided it. So a lot of time it'll be something will pop up. It'll pop onto my radar. And usually it's, you know, at this point in my life, it's five years before it's in, in, the, in the conversation for most people. And so it'll be, I don't know, CBD, right? And I'll take it and I'll look at the, the literature that we have. And I'll, I'll make some kind of a protocol and I'll test it and I'll test it on myself. And then I'll go below that, above that. I'll cycle on, I'll cycle off. And then if I'm finding something, I'll give it out to like my immediate circle. And then if people get some type of result that seems to jibe with what I got, then from there we can, we can test it on more coaching clients or we can, we can try a different protocol and kind of refine what's going on. Really, I want to capture that and make it more articulate than it just was even and put that into into a log so that people can say, oh, you know, actually, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing that 
you know, this part of my body flares up every time I wear these pairs of shoes or two days after this type of workout. And to kind of self-coach yourself, I think, I think no matter how, no matter how good your coach could be, it, it'd be really hard to match the athlete themselves if they're, if they're able to educate themselves and keep up. And so I'm trying to arm people with those kind of tools, right? Just trying to present an ideology so people can, can look through their own running. Well, that's not how fitness works. No, it's definitely not how fitness works. You don't works. teach people how to think for themselves. You tell them, this is something that someone paid me to do, and I'm going to tell you 100% it's going to work for every single person on this planet, and you should use sure. my code right now. Yep. That's how fitness works, Anthony. Yep. And those people will always outsell me, but I'm just going to sell the truth for cheap over here and just, just let, let the people come if they will. I'll definitely them. You know, those people all wear themselves out eventually. Eventually, you've sold 5,000 different products with the same claim, and eventually you wear your welcome thin. Yours is going to be sustainable. Yeah, we'll see. Listen, Marty, Marty Jerome's rolling in it with his cookie cutter log. <laughs> yeah. But, but that's the thing, right? Even though you and Anthony don't love the log, it serves its purpose and it's it's factually based. Even if some of his snippets you don't agree with, there's a place to write what you need to write and people sure. will use it for alone, right? I'll stop. Just because we're on this, I'm going to flip to three random pages and I'll read the factoid. Does that sound good, Anthony? Yeah. Let's see what we get. Okay. Yeah. Let's see. All right. First one. A week of January 4th. So right away. Tip. Chronic lower back pain? Try yoga. Studies show that it can be as effective as physical therapy for relieving agony. That's tip one. How do you feel about that? All right, that's a little better than neutral. I'll give it to him. Week of May 31st. In addition to a reliable heart rate monitor, better fitness trackers come with a long battery life, GPS, and waterproof design. A sleep tracking feature is nice as well. It sure is nice, isn't it? <laughs> what am I supposed to do with that? 50% of that is 66% of that statement is super good. Okay, hold on. But this is good. I just slipped uh, September 13th. Last one I'm doing. We got September 13th. Have you lengthy ones, though? Have you, I haven't even I, I'm, I'm, I'm on one, kind of. This is oh, the tip. Right. Yeah. Most snake bites result from mutual surprise, it says. For prevention, stay on the trail, keep your dog on a leash, and wear long pants when temperatures rise to 80 degrees or higher. <laughs> what do you think of that one? It's progress, maybe. No. I was just thinking the monthly ones, the like the big hefty ones at the beginning of the months. I haven't even read them. I mean, I I'm, I'm whatever. I'm we're into July now, and I don't think I've read. I think I'm zero for six. <laughs> okay, so that that piques my interest in the Anthony Kunkel daily running log, circa 2022. Does it start on January 1st? Yeah, I think that makes sense. Or yeah. whatever that week is. December something to January something. Okay. I didn't know if you were going by date or if you were going to leave 365 training days and the day that your off-season cycle begins starts your training year. Yeah, I have thought about that. I'm actually not totally sold on on one way or the other yet, I suppose. I'm not trying to to, to push you. I was just curious because I've, I've flip-flopped for years whether I should be date or cycle-based. Yeah, it probably makes sense. Date is nice. For looking at historical data, date date is nice. Yeah. That's the only thing. Yeah, yeah, but there's a cleanliness to a new book for a new chapter of your training. 
Yeah. And that's satisfying. It'd be easier to keep stock of as well, right? I mean, you could just have stock of 10,000 of them and you would never be out because they're not dissipated. <laughs> that's not how you make money. <laughs> I mean, it's already going to be so hard to try to peddle truths on people. So This one right here is like a 37-page notebook of mine because it was it bridged between two surgeries so this was like its uh-huh. own chapter this year i i got or last year i got away from annual and i went to training cycle so i don't know i'm still not sold but i'm trying that a new way that's pretty cool i like that yeah i like that i um i want to clarify why we're talking to you today anthony <laughs> Uh, or how we know you exist. And that is, you touched on it, but I want to preface like our conversation a little bit now that we're getting to know you, but um, Anthony Kunkel. And of course, we both have known Hunter McIntyre for years now, and I guess that you have as well. But we we saw that there was this really fast blonde guy with a man bun out there kind of working with him. And it piqued my curiosity, actually, because you looked like a real high-level legit runner. In fact, I went to your page because he had tagged you in a post, and I saw some of your accomplishments. And I even looked back, I even liked a few of them, like, randomly, because I was like, oh, this is some cool stuff this guy's doing. So we were made aware of you through Hunter's social media. That's the same for you, Bracken, right, as well? Yeah, yeah. The first time that he trained out there, he Hunter and I talked from time to time. He was like, do you see that guy I was running with? He's real, real efficient. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, he, he looks real efficient when he runs. Well, well, Hunter's, you know, Hunter's our boy, and and uh, and he had really good things to say about you. And so he's like, you would love to chat with Anthony. He's he's a smart dude. He's living the, you know, he's living what he preaches and he's, you know, kind of one in his own. And so that's how it came that we reached out to you is we, we saw you training with Hunter and then got curious and he told yeah. us you're kind of your, your own person in a sense, which we admire. So that's why we're talking to Anthony Kunkel today. Did I set that up about right, Bracken? Yeah. And in the most, the, the most intriguing part to me was that you went out there. Obviously, hearing your slight background, we'll get more into background as this thing rolls, but hearing your slight background of you host training, anyone can come as long as they're in on the mission, and you saw someone else doing that and did it, but most runners, like true, in quotes, pure runners, are disdainful for Hunter McIntyre (laughs) and for everything he embodies, right? And so you wouldn't find many people who have some actual running acumen who would give him the time of day. And so I was right from the start. I knew there's something different here that this guy is a, I mean, just to read off a few of your accomplishments for the the listeners, you've been the U.S. 100K road champ, U.S. 50-mile road champ. You have been second and third place at the JFK 50. You've run a sub three uh, 50K correct? 255? Yeah. 225 marathon. Like these are legitimate national borderline world level running performances. And those type of performances aren't the type that say, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to go join this 212 pound uh, mud runner slash hybrid CrossFit games athlete and, (laughs) and really live with them and run with them. You just don't hear that kind of thing. And right away, we just thought that's the mindset we want to chat with. Right on. Well, that, that feels validating then. That's good to know people are watching, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. We, Kirk and I grew up running. We ran high school, we ran college, and then we found the trails and obstacle course racing and mountain running and fell in love with that. But 
all of our friends that we grew up with and our room teammates gave us nonstop flack for joining the the atypical running world. So again, it's just, there are very few people like you who would give us the time of day. And that was cool to see. Nice. Yeah, I do. Miguel, I call it flopping. I was like, you're, you're in the sport of flopping. Like when I look mm-hmm. at what you do, I just, I just think about flopping. <laughs> it's like, I'll send him occasional, just like the snarkiest social media stuff ever about, about just the ridiculousness and arbitrariness of, of some sport. But yeah, man, I mean, running's running, right? I think, I think there's a lot of crossover with a lot of different athletes and we all, we all kind of need easy aerobic days or at least we should. And so having, having that, that crossover, we might, we might as well all, all vibe. So it's, and it's easy. I mean, Hunter's an easy guy to love in person, man. I think he's, I think he's got a fun, you know, persona here and he has, he has some amazing, like I would call it coping mechanisms to, to deal with the the level of athletics that he wants to compete at. But at the end of the day, I mean, the, the dude's the dude's the real deal. He's he's ready to he's ready to prep the next generation to to whoop his own ass, but he's not gonna go down without a fight, you know? It's like it's kind of the perfect, you know, I, I like to say that winning, I'm not sure who or if I stole this from anybody, but it's like the, the idea that trying to win is absolutely everything, but winning is nothing, right? It's like you, you the the it really isn't the struggle. So mm. Yeah, he's easy to hate from the outside because he visually and verbally represents a lot of things a lot of people don't like, but he's almost impossible to spend a lot of time with and not grow to love. Yeah. I'm always trying to host people. So yeah, um, that, that kind of resonated with me and then, yeah, just kind of riffing from there. And, and I, I always kind of like the question of how do you like make ends meet and how do you make all this work financially? Because I was a, you know, ambitious, whatever worth something 18 year old and somebody worth something 18 year old you know like i had i had dreams you know i had potential at some point in my life i don't know what happened aren't you living those dreams right now anthony i I think i am i think i'm living the new dreams but i think i had dreams that you know your parents would be happy about or something at some point it's like I, i entertained the idea of going to west point for a while and like i had some pretty ambitious dreams back in the day but so i just i i got the advice which is a pretty typical I don't know, like Stephen Covey advice or somebody of find somebody that's doing what you want to do and ask them how they did it. You know, find, find somebody that's, that's already down that path and just, and just kind of tease apart what, how, how they managed to make it work. And in the running world, it kind of sucks because it's, you know, well, I run for Nike and I run in these shoes because they're the best shoes on the market. It's like, cool. So how do you pay for, you know, electricity or food? And it's like, oh, right. well, I'm really mm-hmm. fast. It's like, all right, so, so how do you pay for food, you know? And so I, I always kind of like this question because I feel like if enough people are hearing this, then then they could realize that, I don't know, I'm not sure if it's less viable or more viable than, than people think it is, but it's odds and ends. I mean, right now I'm not, I'm not carrying a big shoe sponsor, which is typically your lifeblood as an athlete. You know, that's, that's where you make your, whatever it ends up being 20 to 40 K or maybe a little more if you're, if you're super, super elite but that's, that's how you subsist. Right. And I'm doing it without that through owning, owning my shoddy little place in Durango, Colorado, and, and just like cutting, cutting my living expenses to, to nil. I mean, obviously I don't have like health insurance or anything like that. It's like, I mean, I, I recently enough got rid of my phone plan. I recently enough sold my car. It's like, I, I, I 
drive a solo wheel, you know, an electric unicycle around town. I'll get a rental car when I need one. I'll take public transport when I can. It's like my, my overhead for my life is, is astronomically small. And so living like a monk helps a lot. But then in the end of the day, you still have to have some way to come up with, you know, a thousand to two thousand dollars a month. Right. I mean, life life is expensive. You got to travel. Um, sponsors are very easy to lean on for 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 travel, for races, for events, even even turning a little bit of profit on things that could potentially cost somebody money. You know, the average person spends money on this sport, obviously. So to, to have that making you a little bit, you know, it's it's like you have one sponsor that'll cover half of your travel, another sponsor that'll cover you know, all of your travel, you just expense it to them. And then you have another sponsor that says, here, here's the corporate credit card, put this on this card. And then you expense it three times over again, you know, don't tell my sponsors. And then, and then you end up like a little bit in the green, you win some prize money, you win some performance bonuses, you write a blog about it. Next thing you know, you just had, you know, a $3,500 weekend and a, a badass trip somewhere. And so it's a lot of just little odds and ends like that. And just not, nothing's nothing's too small right nothing's nothing's too small when you're living on next to nothing when you're living on so little and so it it keeps it pure and i I really am at the point now where sometimes i'll i'll look at like a seasonal job and think like man that'd be a lot of fun i'll just go you know do trail work for 15 dollars an hour or something and it almost feels like cheating it almost feels like i'd have to donate that money or something i'd have to just like keep the hunger around as Hmm. as as an athlete because it's there's something to that you know it's like seeing a bunch of us all together at Hunter's place, for example. And we're all kind of living that, that starving artist life. I think there's, I think there's something beneficial to that, to that kind of monastic living and that kind of, especially when you're competing for prize money, it helps if you need the prize money, right? You know, somebody that when you're an hour deep into an event, somebody that needs it is going to do it. And I think there's, there's something to be said for like Northeast Africans conquering marathons like we've never seen right now. And it's, to the Western world, what's, what's $20,000, you know, e- even if it is a lot of money, even if it's $50,000 or $100,000, even if it's a lot of money, it's not a lot of money compared to building a well and a church and buying a few head of cattle for your whole village. It's like, it's so much stronger than that. And I think if you can run and race and compete and train with this whole kind of this community behind you, you know, whether it be this community of vagabonds, the ultra house or, or a community of training buddies, or your your literal you know community back home. There's there's something powerful to that, and something raw and human to that. And I think that's what the best of the best are tapping into. And that's kind of what I'm trying to create here. And so I'm definitely not after any kind of big contracts or big big money. I I really I don't know what I would do with more than you know maybe 30k a year. I think I would just donate it or something. I think I'd start a foundation, or I would I would sponsor other runners or something I mean, genuinely because I, I don't I think it's good to stay hungry and I think it's good to need it and I think people even even athletes I think athletes ask too much you know the idea that an athlete would ever be worth a hundred thousand dollars a year just because you're selling shoes or something it'd be so much better for the sport to sponsor five athletes at twenty thousand dollars a year keep them hungry you know keep them lean <laughs> I, I get that and I lived that life for a few years playing devil's advocate coming out on the other side, eventually you get injured or you get slower Uh or you get married or you have kids or you get sick. And at some point that thrill turns to stress. Have you dipped into the stressful? This is no longer exhilarating. This is now a burden or are you still living the, 
are you riding that that high wave? I think I've been given the opportunity to dip into that. And mm -hmm. I don't I don't think I have. I think it's kind of been I think the longest it's ever taken me is probably two weeks to flip the switch where it's just kind of okay. like kicking the dirt and like, man, what am I doing with my life? And like existential crises, right? You know, I'm, I'm totally selfishly absorbing everything that I can possibly absorb. Even if I'm taking so little, even just taking calories from, from the world here to, to pursue my sport, I'm just a black hole of selfishness. Right. And if I'm not even putting up races to inspire people, then what the hell am I doing with my life? Right. I mean, the nihilism, nihilism is just, is just waiting to, to pounce on you here. And I've, I have kind of bumped into that for sure. And, and the sustainability factor and like the pressure of it all. But I think I pivot so quickly where it's all right, you know, what, what, what is my motivating factor? What am I doing here? What of value am I adding to the world? And there's always something you can do. You know, it's, it's, it sounds kind of cliche to say building a brand, but that's really what it is in the end of the day. It's, it's, it's building a brand, whether that be coaching or, or just offering advice freely or, you know, creating, creating blog content or things like this podcast. Hopefully people can listen to this and say, ah, that was a pretty good idea. Even if it takes us an hour to get there. And it's <laughs> like to, 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 to keep on doing all of those things maintains both financially, you know, the, the racing itself, that's, that's kind of the, the good news and the bad news about this sport is there's no money in it. You know, there's, there's very few people that could just stop performing and plenty of them are my friends. I mean, they're great human beings, but it's like, there's plenty, there's, there's a few people in this game that could stop performing and would still be able to feed themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, they, they, they don't actually, they're not on the hook to run races or write anything or create any media or do anything like that. And I don't like that. That rubs me the wrong way that you could just coast and post your favorite beers on social media. And because you ran a good race one time that the world owes you money or something. So I think I tend to look at it differently enough that it's, I don't know that, that, that I'll have, does that answer the question? Did I, did I skirt around the question too much there? Or am I getting to some truth there? I think these kind of questions are best when they lead to a different question. Like maybe yep. that was the answer some people want to hear and maybe it's the answer they don't want to hear. But you said two things that I want to explore deeper. And first is that you, you talked about it being essentially a egotistical, self-centered pursuit. And you also said racing to inspire people. Now, I believe that there are two types of people who race to inspire people. The first is, like you talk about, I am openly self-centered and I am racing and I truly believe I'll inspire people. And then they're the type that hide their self-centeredness and say I'm racing to inspire in order to hide the fact that they just want to pursue stuff and get some sponsors. Like they'll say, oh, I'm, I'm doing this crazy new event to raise money for this and to inspire people to get out and do it. And then they get $75,000 in sponsorships and leave their wife and kids behind for six months while they pursue it. Like that's closeted selfishness and they didn't actually help anything. So I'm not asking you which one you are because I know which one you think you are and probably which one you are. But what is your true take on racing to inspire? What level of inspiration actually exists out there that an athlete can provide to the everyman? Yeah. I mean, I think my my motivation, like we're touching on here, is I have a, I guess I would call it a phobia like, like a complex, even like I have a huge concern about being a black hole. Like the okay. idea that the idea that I'm going to finish my day and feel like I took something from the world and didn't give anything back genuinely gives me like a visceral stress response. Like even just talking about, it, even just thinking about it right now, it's like, 
I know some of that is probably like playing with classic psychedelics. And I think the mushrooms told me that the first time. So you know, <laughs> I'll digress there, but you do hang out with hunters. So that all aligns. Yeah. Yeah. It works out. You find yeah. your people, you do. but I, I have this, what, what feels like more than it needs to be, you know, of a, of a magnitude of a fear of being just a black hole. And so I, I do think that you ought to, you owe humanity just just for taking up space here, just for taking up calories and clean water, and and you owe humanity, you owe your fellow people to to create as much as you possibly can and to connect with people, whatever that means. And in the modern world, you really can't stand for anything at all if you're not winning. I mean, if, if you're not extremely visible, and it's like I'm like five eight on a good day, you know, like this lighting might not be super flattering, but like I'm a decent looking dude, right? But if I'm not winning races, there, there's not a whole lot that I can stand for. It doesn't matter what I what I think that I'm standing for or who I think I'm motivating because I'm only going to be able to motivate the people that I actually go out into the streets and they see me on the solo wheel with the dog and think that it's cool, right? Whereas if I'm winning races and I'm pursuing something huge, something that, that lights my soul on fire, as people say, that it really gets me going, then that creates something that people look at and resonates with. And that creates this kind of positive feedback loop where that's motivating to me it's motivating to people. And I, I really think that I'm, maybe I'm putting the cart before the horse with that, but I really think that because that's my motivating factor, it doesn't feel like it's a farce. It doesn't feel like it's a, like it's a justification, but I'm always skeptical of myself even with that. You know, it's like, like you said, you know, I think, I think I know what you think you are. And it's like, I would agree with that assertion a hundred percent. I think that I think I know what, whatever. So it's well, like, that came off harsher than I intended. No, man. I think, I think that's a hundred percent appropriate. I think we should be, because in the end of the day, I would let the world burn down so I can run, you know, no matter how much good I think that I'm doing and no matter how hard I'm trying to make this, there's still part of me that thinks, man, you're just a selfish piece of shit and you're justifying all this stuff by, by thinking that you're changing anybody. And how do you, not to interrupt quick, but how do you, I first, like you hear this conversation a lot about inspiring. How do you quantify change or inspiration or if you're making a difference or not? That's the trickiest thing, right? Because that's going to keep you honest with your approach. This, this constant battle, making sure you don't go too far down a black hole. How do you quantify that? an inspiration, so to speak. I, yeah. And I, I ask from a personal standpoint, like Bracken and I with this podcast, we've been very open, like, sure, we are spreading knowledge to the people, but selfishly, we're getting as much out of this as anybody, aren't we, Bracken? And so it is a reciprocated sort of thing. So that's why I asked that question, because I have a hard time with it myself, understanding or quantifying if I'm actually giving back or inspiring. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think... <sighs> I think it's quantifying is a hard word, right? I think, mm-hmm. I think we're like subjectively quantifying this, which is instantly, again, is kind of suspect. It's like an oxymoron, so, yeah. So I think when I, I spent this period where early in my running you know, career, if we want to call it that, barely a career, and early, early in my time not working a job for someone else, I'll say, I was kind of chasing these, these things like, all right, what's, what's, what would my brand slide into? What category would me as a brand slide into that's marketable? And, and how, do I, how do I get in touch with those people or those products or this kind of content? And that was okay, right? That's, that's kind of playing the game that we're given. That's, that's not reinventing the wheel. That's not rocking the boat. And over the last, I would say about two years, I kind of said, 
screw it to all that and kind of said, all right, what, what content feels the most honest to me and what feels, what feels most aligned with this like highest hippie version of myself here? What, what feels, what makes me excited and what kind of content do I want to make? And I'm just going to trust that enough people are going to resonate with that, that, that I'll have a market to, you know, a platform to, to stand on here. And since I've been more and more and more aligning with that, I've had such genuine conversations with people that will, that will reach out or, you know, whether it be on person or, you know, drop me a DM on Instagram or whatever it is that'll say, Hey man, I'm doing X, Y, and Z. And it's, it's changed the freaking game for me. It's like, here's what I'm looking at. This used to be the dream and now screw it, man, this is the dream. And it's, it's, you know, to the nth degree and that stuff that gives me energy. I mean, that's, that, that drives me to want to story my life. I mean, I'm actually super uncomfortable with cameras and speakers and all of this stuff. I mean, I, I get off to trade shows like that gives me that, that gives me a manic amount of energy where I can't sleep at night. But when it comes to this abstract kind of social media stuff, it gets very fake to me. And having a few, you know, in my case, it's about 250 people that follow everything that I do. I mean, they see every food item that I eat. They see every story that I do. And it's it's somewhere around that number. Talking to those people and giving those people access to anything that I have here and then hearing them say, this was valuable. What, what the hell does that even mean? What are you doing with this? Tell me more about this has made it all so, maybe it's immature that it took me that long to, to make social media actually social. But I think it's, maybe that's innate in social media that it's depersonalized and it's fake. But it's gotten so real for me lately that now, now it's like an addiction. I mean, now it's driving itself and now it, it, it feels real. So that was a very subjective answer to what would have been an awesome objective objective quantification on there. I mean, I quantify a lot. If you guys have seen my social media, I track all my biometrics. I quantify as much as I possibly can, but there's only so much you can do. And so I think, you know, a message a week or so of someone that's like, that was really valuable. Thanks for posting that. Dude, that gets me stoked. That gets me out of bed. Well, I want to, well, social media aside, you, You've like, I'm very curious about one thing, and that is all of us in this like endurance world, especially trail running, we all, I feel like even the corporate America trail runner has this like inner hippie, right? This inner granola eater who secretly wants to live the van life and do exactly what you're doing. I mean, there's an appeal in that. We run on trails because we feel free, because there's no constraints but our own body's capabilities, and that's an amazing thing, right? So, but making that leap is impossible for some seemingly or very scary for some and you said that you were what i want to know is where this all started right social media side influencing other people aside like the i crave that lifestyle and i don't have it right now like making that jump in that transition scary like if somebody was to do that or were to do that were there steps that you took to make that happen that's what i actually want to know not that i'm going to do it because i'm pretty embedded in my current life but i know people in this world crave that lifestyle or at least idealize it yeah and some or romanticize it so tell me how that transition happened and why i think that's what makes it marketable right it's the i've called it the once a runner phenomenon everybody wants to know the what if you know the reason everybody loved once a runner is he he got out of his whole life he went up to a cabin in the woods and he trained his face off and it's like people everybody's wondered well how fast could i be if i had nothing else going on and so that is what makes it marketable, right? And I think 
I think the the blessing for me was that I knew from a really young age. I mean, I, I was like 17 or 18 and I met this dude, Zach Gingrich, and he was training for Badwater. And it was like the second I heard about that, it was just like a light bulb went off. It was like, this is what I'm here to do. I don't, I don't know what the hell that means. I don't know how I'm going to feed myself. I don't know what I'm going to do for a job. I don't know anything, but this is what I'm here to do. I'm 100% positive. And it was, if, you know, from that in mind, I kind of just engineered this whole life. You know, you don't, you don't have a life as an 18-year-old kid. Everything's flexible. Or most people don't. And so it, it helped that I never had like a big, like a big boy corporate job, right? I mean, it, there wasn't anything to kind of transition out of to transition into this. I did obviously work. I mean, I, I worked my butt off early in life and like I was selling gym memberships or personal training or, or whatever odds and ends and, and working plenty. And at some point I had a, I had a, I, I, this was, this is really the story that I tell and, and, you know, back me up if we need to go further behind this, but I was working in an outdoor shop and I was working whatever, three, four days a week, but they were opening shifts to closing shifts. So it was like, you know, whatever, 7.30 a.m. to 8.30 p.m. And in, in the winter, that's more than all day, right? And so I'd get up early. I'd run my seven-and-a-half-mile route in Golden up and over South Table Mountain, end up at work, and I'd work all day. And I would either run home the long way or I'd run at lunch. And I took like an hour and a half for lunch one day. And my bosses sit me down, yeah, man, we just we can't have you here if you don't want to be here you know, you took like an hour and a half for lunch the other day. And then it's just, it's just not, it's just not okay. I mean, you know, you have 45 minutes or whatever it was. And I said, okay, well, I really don't want to be here. Can we, I mean, you guys know what my priorities are here. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm an awesome employee while I'm on the clock. Like it, if you're telling me no hard feelings, you can just take me off the schedule, then yeah, just take me off the schedule. And so that kind of lit a fire in a mass, right? It's like, all right, this, this shit just got real. And what I had the previous season, the previous summer, this had to have been fall. The previous summer, I had coached um, a track, like track and field program, coach distance for the city of Golden, Colorado, and I had a, a bunch of youth athletes, you know, nine to thirteen, that just loved me to death, and it, it's all I care about, right? And I'm I'm quick to say that I don't I don't know all the answers, and kids kids either get a I don't know go go play in the dirt or a, or a, a, just a bullshit answer. And kids see through that. And I think, I think I, I buy with a lot of kids in that like middle school age group because I'm okay being like, I don't know, let's find out. And we can just kind of dive in and play all day. And so I had a few kids that really, really liked what I was putting down. And I had toyed with the idea of having my own team and having kind of like a, like a proper development team and expose them to mountain running and snowshoe running and this broad spectrum of things. And so I had that in the back of my head going, you know, in to talk with my bosses. I wasn't just cutting the cord with no, with no exit plan here. And so at that point I went home and just dropped an email out and said, Hey guys, I got a team going. We're going to have, we're going to have, you know, five practices a week and I'll do a flexible morning session for those of you that need it. And at that point, having total freedom over my schedule, let me have these practices whenever I want. So then I just ran this youth team you know, 150 bucks a month. We got five practices a week with a sixth in the morning, you know, great deal for the, for the kids. Great deal for me. I can grow it however I wanted to. And I just had a thriving youth team for a while in Golden. And so that, that gave me kind of the financial freedom to 
you know, grow it as big as I want or have it as small as I want, do as much or as little customer service as I wanted and just kind of offer my own brand to a few people there. And that, that kind of got me, you know, working in the outdoor industry, I was exposed to the idea of trade shows and how, how the companies actually worked on the back end, how much money is spent on media and how much money is spent on athletes and, and all these, all these kind of logistical details of it. But that's really, that was my turning point was that was going from working you know, whatever it was, 30 hours a week, it still wasn't a ton by American standards to working just for myself for five to six hours a week, you know, seven to eight hours a week, plus, plus a track meet here and there, or a 5k here and there, or a snowshoe race on a, on a Wednesday night or whatever it was. And so that, that kind of gave me the freedom then to choose and, and, and have, have freedom over my own time. And, and again, kind of went to trade shows and, and got in touch with all these different companies and, learned about what was being offered, dove into the whole industry on, on every end from there. And it's been, it's been smooth sailing ever since. And then that, that was kind of a, I had stepped down from working way too much to working a reasonable amount and then working basically nothing just for myself, something that I would do for free that I love doing and something that feels like you really are inspiring the next generation. I mean, you're exposing kids to something that they wouldn't be exposed to otherwise. So rather they take it or leave it, there it is. And that felt earnest. And then from there, it was, it was pretty easy to, to sift, you know, to slide out of that into, you know, a sponsor for 500 here and a sponsor for 500 here and just kind of, you know, blog posts and whatever odds and ends. What year was that, that when you started the, the running club in Golden? That had to have been 2014 or 2015, maybe the, the last part of 2014. And where were you at with your running career at that point? Um, I assume you ran high school. I did, but I didn't run in college. No. So that's, I know that's a little abnormal. I think I I ran in a really competitive sectional. So like I never got to go to state. I basically sucked. And then I got into my adult life where I went to like a Nike national, whatever, like a Nike camp in the summer Mm -hmm. and realized, dang, I'm, I'm pretty good. You know, I'm like 50th in my sectional and I'm probably 150th in the nation. (laughs) It's like, like, I don't suck as much as I thought I did. You know, I thought I was just, I was just wallowing in future Olympians where I was and just getting my butt kicked all the time. So I had, and my coaching was horrible. So I had no interest in running in college. And with that point, where was I? I mean, it, it'd be hard to, I'd have to bust out the running logs, man. I mean, I had. Did you keep running after high school during uh-huh. college? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. With what motivation? Just love or what? Um, I mean, like I said, I had that, that moment with Badwater when I was like 17 or 18. I mean, I, I, ran, I ran my first 50K at 18. Hmm. I graduated in June, and I ran the Huff 50K in Indiana in like six inches of snow, having never run in any amount of snow, having never really run trails, and did it in road shoes. And like my hip flexors were so screwed. I mean, I had to walk backwards. Like it was, it was atrocious. <laughs> But I kind of caught the bug, right? So I was training. I was training to race, and I was training to, to go do things. and And I got exposed to this idea of like the hundred k national team and being able to compete internationally with Team USA under the International Olympic Committee. And I kind of got exposed to all that. And I want to say my first my first honest attempt at that had to have been twenty sixteen. So that had to have been further on. I don't know. I mean, I had a few course records, and I had done plenty of fixed timed events, you know, like six hour events and was slowly figuring out how to run longer than 50 K without 
totally having catastrophic blowups. Couldn't have been coincidence that you didn't have your first true attempts and success until after you left and started doing your own thing. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, that was... Now I wish I had the dates. It had to have been 2016 where I was second. Let's see. Yeah, that has to be. No, it had to have been 2016 where I was second to Zach. Oh, yeah, we could tether it with JFK. Maybe it was 2015. Somewhere in there, I was I was second to Zach Bitter at the 50-mile national camps. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of a moment. That was like, oh, shit, you know, I'm I'm going to win one of these at one of these points. You know, like, it's kind of yeah. the... The harder you work, the luckier you get. It was still, it still felt like, you know, one of these points I'll get lucky enough and I'll, and I'll win one of these. And then it was 2017 that I was, let's see, it was 2016 that I was second gym at, at the JFK 50. And it was 2017 that I won the 50 mile national champs. And then it was 2018 that I won the hundred K national champs. And that's, that's kind of, you know, the 50 mile national champs, it was gravel road. It was like 5,500 feet of gain or a little less. And it was, it was my perfect element of success. It was hot. It was, you know, nobody's going to beat me on something like that. And, you know, it wasn't technical. It was, it was a gravel road race. And so that, that felt like, okay, that was kind of a fluke. You know, everything just went to shit for everybody because it was hot and I just got lucky and I won. But then the hundred K national champs was the other end of the spectrum. It was five degrees Fahrenheit at the start. It was blasting wind. It was like hundred percent humidity in Madison. It, it was miserable. And that's not my element of success by any means, but kind of similar thing. It was like, well, I didn't really win. Everything just went to shit for everyone else. And at a certain point you need to, isn't that what an ultra is? Yeah, basically just attrition. I mean, but not necessarily on the roads, you know, it's like on the roads, you can kind of, especially some of these dudes that are, you know, two twenty or faster marathons. It's like they can, they can hold their shit together and run six minute miles for a long time. So yeah, it, it felt like a little bit less of a fluke. And so that, that got me my first team USA slot, but yeah, looking at it right now, this, it, it is, it is fairly clear. It was, it was, you know, I was a hobby jogger compared to what I, what I am now, now that I have total freedom and can sauna twice a day and ice plunge once a day and, and train whenever I want and, and take naps when I can and et cetera, et cetera. So what are you today? You you have a second and a third place at the JFK 50, which is one of the most prestigious 50s in America. Uh, the second place was behind Jim's, Jim Walmsley, um, your 100K national champion. You've also run, what, 226 in a road marathon. So you've got to have some sort of eye on trial standard at some point. Like what, are you the jack of all trades or are you a something? Um, I think I'm a 50 miler. But I yeah. think it would take a lot of money and travel to actually make a season out of doing 50 miles. 50 um, mile what? 50 or just mile, 50 mile in general? 50 mile road race in a perfect world. That, that's even more limiting. <laughs> I think that's really what makes it limiting. Like a flat road race? Something with some yeah. elevation. Just flat, flatter the better. Metronome for as long as you possibly yeah. can. Yep. Right? Just, right. just Five five forty five a mile, just all day. I mean, that, that's like my favorite thing to do. It's my favorite pace to run. It's my it's it's fast enough that it's not hard, but it's fast enough that mentally the miles tick off really quickly. And I just anymore, I'm slowly leaning into that. Of it's less. I used to say I like to race for five hours. So that might be a really gnarly fifty k in the mountains. That might be a flat fast road race. That might be a hundred k with the last hour and a half really miserable. Um that that sort of thing right because just metabolically and i don't like how logistical 100 milers are it's like i don't want to have to 
I don't want to have to plan that much. I'm kind of a hands-off laissez-faire to my own detriment with crew. It's kind of just like, whatever, guys. I'll just, I'd rather you screw it up than us have to sit down and make a plan, genuinely. Okay. I'd rather do without than to make plans to have it. I just, I, just, I just want to run free, and when I'm done having fun, then I better be at the finish line or I'm going to drop. It's like, I just don't, it's not about suffering for me enough. I'm not, I'm not gritty, you know, like I'm squishy. And so I really like that. You think you're not gritty? You've run a 255, 50K. You've run a 100K on the road, national champion. I mean, you're not gritty. I did that 255, 50K on no water. My stomach was upset because I was, I was playing with a different supplement stack. Just, it was like a, it was like a prep race. And like my stomach was off, so I literally ate and drank nothing. And I was the definition of gritty. I was out there. I was out there looking like Fernando won. Fernando Cabada, he won. He went out hard. I just let him go. And I was like, oh man, did you see those like silver pines? Did you see the trees? It was like we were dipping into into fall in the northeast. He's like, dude, I didn't see anything. It's like he he was gritty. He was gritting his teeth, grinding it out. I was out there like having so much fun. I mean, my. My interview after the 50 mile national champs that after that win was ridiculous. I mean, I crossed the finish line and not breathing hard. I'm like, Hey, how was it? I was like, it was pretty good. I, I really wanted to catch a leaf, but I didn't catch a leaf. And it's like, people have referenced that to me before. Like I'm just out there prancing. And honestly, it's the truth, man. I am, I am not gritty. I am so soft. I am such a little bitch. Like I don't like being uncomfortable. I don't like being hot. I don't like being cold. I mean, I'm willing to do it because it's, you know, it's the cost of being in love here. It's the cost to do business. And, but it's not what it's about. I really don't like the idea that ultra runners are just these like sadistic freaks that are just operating on some different software than everyone else. And we're just, we're able to turn pain into motivation or something. Like, I don't like anything to do with that. I don't. Listen, maybe you're just the, uh, the classic distracted runner. I have clients in the gym, I'm a personal trainer and, and uh, they need to be chatting the whole time. And if they're chatting the whole time and distracted, they work twice as hard as if we focus on the movement and the task at hand. So maybe you just got rose tinted glasses on and you're out there and you, you have you compartmentalize the pain and the enjoyment maybe a little better than others because there's I don't I'm not buying what you're selling. I'll be honest. There's no way that you are not grittier. I think you're I mean maybe you're being very humble, but you you don't run like that without be having some grit. Whether you blocked it out and choose pretty leaves over the lactate buildup or whatever it is, but I don't know. I, you must be, you must have a gift somewhere in there is what I'm assuming. I mean, I train a lot too. I train a lot too. That's like those Northeast Africans, right? It's like train, train hard, win easy. I mean, I, I really don't, I really don't like going to the well. I mean, I've dropped out a bunch of times. Like if I'm uncomfortable, I'll bail. I really don't. I think if you're looking for grit, you'll find grit. If you're, if you're looking to, to be challenged and find pain and conquer it or whatever. I, I think you'll find what you're looking for, but I think by refusing to, to play that game, I do think there's an alternative. I think there's this very Buddhist idea of, of just there's pain. There's definitely pain, but it's, it's just not, it's not what I'm there to do. And so it's not, it's not on there. I think there's something also to be said and along those lines of the thing you are good at and the thing that you enjoy feels different to you than other people. I mean, I was an 800 meter runner and you hear a lot, the 800 is the most painful race in the world. And I think, no, the 5k or the 10k is way worse. You just have to sit in this or a, a marathon, just sitting in one stride for hours. That's the worst. 800, by the time it hurts, you're kicking. And when you're kicking, you're free and it's over. Like 
Yeah. I'm yeah. Was there misery out there? I'm sure that I was always miserable during an 800, but it didn't hit me as misery. It hit me as an acceptable component to the thing I was good at and that I enjoyed. But a 10K yeah. runner runs an 800 like, I will never touch that again. That was terrible. <laughs> I think I'm not going to go for a six-mile tempo run. That's terrible. So I, I, my assumption is that you read it because you love it a little differently than other people would read it. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've spent a lot of time. Like, I mean, I don't know how many hours, but I've spent a lot of time at, like, my local Dharma Center. I mean, I spent a lot of time on the cushion. I spent a lot of time with formal meditation practice. Okay. And, I, I think there's something to that. I mean, there's something to that little bit of disconnect between, you know, having a, having a half a second gap between some urge or some impulse or something popping up and being able to say, well, do I, do I really need to act on this? And a lot of the time, maybe, maybe that's what the pain is, right? It's just, it's, it's there and it's real and it's a thing. I mean, it's probably the realest thing ever, but it just doesn't matter. It's not relevant. It's just not, yeah, it's it's just it's hmm. not even, it's not even on the radar. And do, so, do you think do you think your meditation, energy work, all of that stuff, how does that translate to your training and racing? Like, how is that a benefit? Would you say? I think it's just I think it's that same gap. It's it's that gap that I'm describing. It's that you have that you have that pain, and you're not you don't become that pain, right? You don't you don't dive down that rabbit hole of feeling sorry for yourself or making it worse. I mean, a, a perfect example is I remember being a kid. And going to the beach, only like two or three times maybe, but going to the beach. And it had to have been cold, right? Like, I mean, hmm. the water is freaking freezing. Either coast, ocean water is cold. I mean, outside of Hawaii where I just was, it's like ocean water is really, really cold. And now in my adult life, I have to like grit my teeth and get ready and brace myself to get into that water. I don't even remember that. I'm fairly positive that as a kid, it, it didn't register. And it's like, what if, what would we do if we could do that still? And I think that's, that's the pursuit of this whole mindful thing for me. That's, that's, that's why I read the hippie books that I read or, or, you know, do the meditations that I do is if I could tap into that where it's, it's not even a consideration, then how free could we possibly run? And how, how liberating would that be to to be able to not even weigh the pros and cons and not even think about it. I mean, when, when I won the hundred K national champs, I genuinely did not have a conscious thought. I mean, I had no internal dialogue, no words in my brain for more than five hours. I mean, I, I had no self for, for five full hours of that race. And it, so, so it wasn't gritty. I mean, it's, it's the same thing you're describing maybe about, about with the eight, with the 800 of, by the time that it hurt or I even thought about it or it even registered to me, I was done. I mean, I, I had two 5k victory laps to just kind of enjoy it and soak in the fact that I'm, that I, that I pulled it off and then that's it. And so it's, it's intentional. Right. But I think, I think that's one of the things that I'm trying to tap into. And I think that's one of the things that I'm slowly gaining a little bit of traction with of that, that part of you that's just going to run because it feels good. You know, I, I, I think about kids or, you know, I do a lot of running with my dog and it's like, he doesn't care. You know, he can't sweat. And it's, it's been plenty of 90 degree days here in Durango. And you know, that's serious dog cooking weather right there. And he doesn't care. He just, he wants to, he wants to go every day. And no matter how screwed he is and no matter how much he's been lagging and the tongue's hot and dry and dangling out of his head, the second a deer goes by, oh man, we're motivated. He's sprinting down the road again. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's what I want to do. If it takes me a decade to learn how to do that, and I do that once and I can bottle that and, and distribute that to the world, then 
I, my running career will be happy and I'm positive that I can have a book or a running log or any number of things that'll make sure that I don't starve for my remaining years. But I also want to coach at the college level and do some things. I don't, I don't ever want to get out of this game ever. You know, I want to, I want to design shoes if I got the chance or design fitness trackers or anything. I mean, I have, I have a million interests in this sport. So, you know, we were talking about the financial end of things. I don't, I don't ever want to stop. Did your pursuit of that detachment from, as you put it, self during racing, did that start before or after you got real intrigued and into the psychedelics? That was well before. That was well before. before. I, yeah, I had, I had a meditation practice. I remember when I got second to Zach. So what, what was the verdict? Was that 2014, 2015? I, I had an interview on a, like a, Colorado runner podcast. And one of the things that, that came up in there was the fact that I had spent, I don't know, six months doing candle meditation beforehand. And, and, uh, like this relax and alert was a big mantra for me at the time or, um, observe, observe, what, what was it? Observe, relax, allow, or something like that. And it, it came up. So I know I was, I was fairly far down the rabbit hole at that point, And I started playing with psychedelics um, maybe two years after that. Well, what does that mean pl- playing with? It's very intriguing to me, the, uh, that side of life for you and how it, uh, parallels performance or intersects with it. Um, what, what, how, how does that all work together? Tell me that. Really the, the same way everything works like this. So I'll see some piece of literature, right? Johns Hopkins study on psilocybin, and and increased openness for six months after a single dose, a shamanic dose, like a large dose of, of psilocybin. And they had increased... What is that? Sorry to interrupt. What is, what is psilocybin? I don't know what that is. It's, that's the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. Got it. Okay. So they had, they had you know, increased openness, which is a, a psychological trait, you know, one of your big five, like your big traits for humans. And so they had an increase in openness, like receptivity to new ideas and... and probably associated with, with novelty seeking. And these people, these people had these effects for months and months and months after a single dose. And so I was intrigued, right? And this is the same thing that works with, with any science. I see the science. I see people that are trying to do it. I'll hear anecdotes. I'll gather data. You guys, can we be like not as aggressive in this room for just like 40 minutes, maybe 30 minutes? (laughs) Sorry, guys. Summer season at the Ultra House here. There's there's people moving and cooking and soaking and sawing behind me. If you saw people naked people running in and out of here, so, <laughs> you're running so, a hostel over there. It sounds like yeah, basically always, man. Technically, the invite's not open till the 19th, but you know, there's a few people I can't say no to no matter what. So, so I, I get intrigued with any kind of substance or intervention, or rather that be you know, a breathing technique or, or a training technique or a supplement, or, you know, in this case, classic psychedelics. And I'll see some type of study or some type of really bomber anecdote, you know, maybe a a biohacker on a website even. And I'll say, okay, do we have some kind of mechanism of action? Do we have a guess on why this would work? You know, what's the safety profile look like? And then I'll just take the dive and, and dive down in there. And so living in the Southwest, it's pretty easy just to find a shaman to you know, hold my hand and wipe my tears and wave crow feathers at me if, if need be and smudge my space with sage or Palo Santo or whatever. And so I kind of put feelers out and I had this pain in my right leg 
you just contacted uh, uh, your local shamans and got basically, to work? Basically. Yeah, I actually, I actually grew my first batch just to make sure that I knew what I was getting into and knew the dosage and everything. So Okay. I just find like right away, sort of interrupt, but like I f- I picture like dudes out and they're wasted at three a.m. and somebody brought mushrooms. And you're like, yeah, why not, bro? And then suddenly you're like, I like how this makes me feel. And here you are, like you got like a whiteboard with like oh, algorithms on it, yep. deciding consciously to do these things. And I just think that's that's a much different approach, I think, than the common psychedelic user. So I just want to acknowledge the fact that. I find it super interesting about what you're saying. And you can continue. I don't think that's common. I appreciate that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So kind of reverse engineered this. And and one of the things that I put out there was just this intention. You know, I don't don't know what these are going to do for me, if anything. And, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the ancestral wisdom behind it says, well, you don't get what you want, you get what you need. And so it's kind of, you know, how, how demanding do I want to be to, to a very strong medicine here? And, so kind of went in there with a little bit of academic, but also this kind of hippie receptivity and this, you know, all the mindful work helps. You know, you can't, if you're spending whatever, six hours on the cushion a week, if you're, if you're doing formal meditation practice, you know, you're doing, I was doing four hour sits at the time regularly enough with the Dharma Center here in town where, or three hour sits where you'd sit for 45 minutes, walk for 15 minutes, sit for 45 minutes, walk for 15, all with your eyes closed basically. And, and just like the mindful movement. And one of my favorite instructions is take, you're about to spend the rest of your life in a wheelchair. And this is the last step you're going to take. And you want to be able to look back on this step and think and remember exactly how this step feels. And you're supposed to step like that for 15 minutes. And that was like, and so like I had been putting in all what I would consider the homework, right? I'd been putting in this mindful kind of baseline of all this stuff. And so then when I got my, you know, three ish grams of mushrooms in there, fresh ones. So 30 grams then, cause they're, cause they're fresh. They're not dried out which is on the middle to light end of like a shamanic dose, meaning if, you know, a, an ego dissolving dose, you're really getting out there. You're seeing. All shamanic kinds. is a technical medical term. I like the term shamanic. Okay. Um, the, I mean, the, is that, is that when people say shamanic in like the professional community, they know what you're referring to? Yes. Yeah. So you would, you could see like the academic literature will say in high dose psilocybin, or they'll say, they'll say they'll, they'll, they'll quantify it. They'll put number of milligrams of psilocybin per kilogram of body weight. And it kind of loses you. Whereas shamanic is like that has a lot of baggage with it on, on in, in everyone's court there. Right. So people kind of get, that means we're, we're, we're going out of body with this one. You know, we're, we're going to see some colors when there aren't colors. We're gonna you didn't tiptoe in, you went. Yeah. Shamanic. Yeah. So For, I did. And this was your, you truthful, your first attempt with a psychedelic of any sort. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even, I don't really use any, like, I don't drink alcohol. I'll do, like, a wine tasting once or twice a year. Um, I've never, like, played with cigarettes. I don't smoke weed. Like, I like I am a really straight-edge person, right, as far as. So this this was not a a outlet for your, or a ruse for your drug use. This was an academic pursuit that did not dovetail any social lifestyle. Yeah, definitely not. This was this was like, and I think people tend to have this like hierarchy of drugs. So someone that doesn't even drink coffee because the caffeine is too rowdy for a Tuesday, you know, that person couldn't possibly take magic mushrooms, right? It's like some kind, it's this kind of like hierarchy here, but it's more, 
the appropriate, that's, you know, I hashtag this morning in one of my posts, say maybe to drugs, you know, it's kind of, it's mm-hmm. that, it's that idea of, of think for yourself and, and find the appropriate, the appropriate substance for what you're after. And I really don't like the idea of something making me less than what I am. You know, alcohol mm-hmm. to me always seemed like a very crappy drug because, you know, runners love their alcohol, obviously. It kind of goes without saying. It's romanticized. Yeah. And it's like, to me, it's just like such a shitty drug. I mean, it's it's a depressant. You know, it, it, makes, it makes me feel like it makes you less you. Whereas my experience with psychedelics is quite the opposite. It's, it's, it's allowed me to have more of that gap and tap into more of that you know, that kid that can play in 40 degree water and not care. Right. That's, that's exactly what I'm after. And that's, that's what it offered me. And so one of the things that I did my, my first trip, I had pain in my right thigh that I couldn't figure out. I had active release therapy. I had chiropractic on top of chiropractic. I had a lot of active release therapy on it. I rolled it. I, I, I'd like car buffer massage gun it all the time. And it never went away. It like, through heavy training, it wouldn't go away. It would hurt the first half mile of my runs. Through periods off, it would it would hurt. And and the second I started training on it again, and it was like it was like a semi limp when I was first starting before it warmed up. It was miserable. And first trip on mushrooms, I set it all up. Um, I Describe that if you don't mind. Oh, I know your setup. Absolutely. So I use my I, I make my little nest in there. Anything you'd possibly need. So like. You know, hippie stuff, smudging stuff, singing bowls, that sort of thing. Um, what, what, what are all those? Stuff? Wait, what are all those things? Singing bowl. What are we doing here? What, what is a nest? Is that what we call it? You build a nest. That's I call it a nest. I don't think anyone okay. else does, but it's oh, like okay. a nest. It's like having everything in case you barely have a body. Having everything within arm's reach is is probably what you want, or you know, having a sitter is a good is a good way to do it. So I've I've always had both a sitter, just someone to kind of like you know, man me if I need, if my headphones fall out and I literally can't get my headphone back in and I just want this to whatever I'm, I'm jamming with music or whatever, or I'm really getting something, then I want to be able to say, I don't want to have to stop and feel like I have to like work this up with this pen when my thoughts are moving a million miles an hour and my hand is refusing to. And you know, it, like odds it's and it's me anxiety right now. Just listen. I know it's the opposite of anxiety, but I'll, 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 sit you. I'll sit for you sometime. I'll man it all. Oh God. Okay. So having somebody, having somebody to sit for you, having a sitter, a trip sitter is usually what they call it. And that's somebody to like handle your music or if it's too hot or if it's too cold, or if you're just having a hard time or, you know, play shaman or actually be a shaman. And, um, yeah, just like somebody to hold your hand and you can describe where you are, what you're doing or what you're working through. And that can be really beneficial. And so I set all that up and I had, I had a run sitter. So whatever I dosed at like 10 30 AM and had a run sitter at 2 30 PM. And so that's somebody that needs to be punctual because I'm going to have zero concept of time. And so I need somebody that I know I can trust to be there at 2 30, no matter what happens, no matter what I'm dealing with or demons I'm fighting here, I want to know 2.30, there's an end, there's a line in the sand, that person's going to pick me up, we're going to go for a run. And that gives me a good chance with a nice pliable, hyperplastic nervous system to go do something that I'm highly trained at doing, running, right? And to go experience that with this beginner's mind. And so I set everything up, I have my playlist, I have my, my sitter or my shaman, whoever it might be, and set this all up. And one of my intentions with my first trip was to figure out what the hell is going on with that leg. Because at a certain point, if it's not if it's not solved by mechanical interventions and it's not solved by time on training heavy and it's not solved by time off, 
it's got to be peripheral nervous system. Like that's my best guess. It's got to be just some kind of pain pattern. We know, I forget who's written about it. It's that woman that has like 30 world records in powerlifting that wrote a book on back pain and I'm, I'm totally losing her name, but she's talked a lot about it. And I know there's this whole idea that a lot of the sports injuries that you experience don't actually have a mechanical cause. They're just, it's some type of assault to your nervous system and you kind of store pain in there. It's this kind of pain pattern. And so I was receptive to the idea that this could do something and maybe I manifested it, but I mean, maybe it was some ether or some nebulous hippie kind of thing going on here, or maybe there's something that we could measure here, but I kid you not. I went into that having pain every single day for, for more than two years in this right thigh that would kind of bounce around or whatever to not having pain since. And this has been, this has been whatever it's been five years now or, or thereabouts. And I just dove into it and it was like, well, there's nothing wrong with it. That's, that's what the leg was telling me. I kind of went in there layer by layer and just peeled this back. And it's like, well, there's nothing wrong with it. And I created this, this space in there, in this, in this leg and my relationship to myself. And you're just like, you're like hugging your legs and you're like, Oh, why don't I do this all the time? I'm spending time with my body and, and really diving into this and was able to flush that out. And it, it hasn't hurt since. And so now I'm kind of, now I have my own anecdotes, right? I have my own kind of, kind of theories and, and hypotheses to kind of test and play with. But there's something to this. I think if humans have been doing something for a long enough time, there's got to be some type of truth to it, whether it's the truth that they think or not, there's got to be something to it. And I think there's a lot of validity to these, these classic psychedelics in, in a shamanic context. I mean, in a truly treating it like it's medicine and, and being ready to, to take whatever it wants to give you basically and respecting it, respecting it as something that's that's changed people's lives for, you know, at least tens of thousands of years, if not longer. You had six months in clinical trials, six months of openness afterwards. How long did you experience benefits for? Um, I might still be. I mean, my leg still doesn't hurt. So whatever that was, we knocked that. Have you done it since? Or out of place. Yeah, I do. Um. I do more than a trip a year, but not much more. Um, do you do small have, doses in between, as you would call it? Yeah, right. Right now, I'm doing pretty classic microdoses, so about ten percent of a of a large dose, or ten percent of a shamanic dose, as I would call it. And you'll take that every other day or every third day. And so, like right now for the training block, I'm doing. Um, microdosing mushrooms it's it's this mushroom stack and it has it has cordyceps and lion's mane and like functional mushrooms like stuff that normal people use or stuff that's not schedule one rather and so it's this nice blend of of synergistic mushrooms in there and it's a it's a super small dose i wouldn't say that it's a true microdose because it's not really sub perceptual i can definitely feel it but i'm also rather tuned in to my body as an athlete and so i'm it's, it's probably a pretty standard microdose for other people. And right now I'm on every, every fourth day. And so you'll have a day, you'll have a day immediately after where they call it the afterglow day. And that, that afterglow is really solid. I mean, I, I get effortlessly mindful for my runs, just classic flow state for my runs on just, just predictably for those, for the day where I dose and the day after. So for me running twice a day, I mean, that's, that's four runs in, pretty deep flow state 
you know, lack of lack of selfness and just kind of getting the miles done and not thinking oh, I have one more mile before I turn around or or any of that stuff, just not being bogged down by by my human brain. And the, the hope for me is that long term I'll get some kind of plasticity from this. But this is not something that I do with any regularity. This this is this is the most frequently I've microdosed ever. And I, I kind of like the idea of not leaning on any substance. I think if it's if it's really helping you, then it's something that should stay around afterwards, especially when you start talking about, you know, the brain or neuroplasticity or learning, really learning from an ancestral medicine like this. If you're if you're learning the lesson, you know, I, I someone had one, I don't know if it's a I'm not I'm not sure if it's who said that, but once you get the message, hang up the phone. You know, people wanna people want to just keep playing with these things or or keep especially now with like the heroic dose, you'll hear heroic doses online. Like he took five grams or 10 grams or whatever it was. And I I think there's a lot to the choice of it. I think that's why I like, there's a sweet spot in dosage for that because you have to choose to not be a body. And I think for an athlete, if I was going to have an elevator speech and refine this down from God knows how long it's been, but refine this down to, to an elevator speech for this, it's you can't make a choice if you don't absolutely know that you could choose the alternative, right? I can't make a choice to continue to be an alcoholic if I don't know for a fact that I could never drink alcohol again. I can't make a choice to back off the pace if I don't know that I could if I could choose to go faster. There's your your choices only have so much weight if you only see one option, one viable option there. And I think something that classic psychedelics offer an athlete, offer someone that's that's living and breathing and sweating and doing all this stuff with this awesome human organism is you will have, you will be faced with that choice to not identify as a body, you know, to, to say, ah, I'm, I'm ether, you know, I'm a, I'm a spiritual being having a human existence or having a human experience or whatever they say. And I would almost, have you guys heard that one? You know, that one, you're a, you're a spiritual being having a human experience or whatever it is. I like putting that on its head and saying, well, that also means that I'm a human being having a spiritual existence as well. It's like these, these, if, if one's true and the other is true to my mind and being able to kind of opt out and saying, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to be ether right now for a little bit. And I'm just going to float in this, in this infinity for a couple of hours and then coming back and like putting on my watch and having a sense of time and having all these tools and paces and shoes and like just, just going out there and doing something I'm highly trained at is profoundly liberating and so what what that has to offer for athletes is experience that that total selflessness of that you know ego dissolution of of i'm nothing i mean i'm not even a consciousness anymore i don't even know how i'm viewing with the things that i'm that i'm kind of viewing because i don't even know that there's a self this to, that, to view them anymore and then to come back and be like ah, i'm a body like I live and breathe and shit and drink water and stuff like this is great. You know, I can, I can accessorize my human body with all this stuff and like I can wear a watch and see, see my paces and stuff. It feels super empowering. And I think that's what that reverse engineering of yourself as an organism is where the biggest value to my mind is. I have uh, I have two big questions. I want to dive into this in my back and I see you have them too. Um, one but just to understand this, because I don't know why this is so intriguing to me, but it very much is. Do you understand what this does to you neurologically? Like how the how this is processed in the body? I'm just super curious, like what this actually does to you on like a physiological level. And then two, like would you consider this a performance enhancer? And is this on 
like uh it sounds like i mean hey if i could enter flow state every run sign me up right that's yeah i might i might get one of those a month not four runs in a row so those are my two questions how does this actually affect you neurologically and then is this a performance enhancing drug in your mind so i think especially the right type of stuff um like mushrooms i don't i don't think so i think the nausea that you would get the the yeah i i think i think there's reasons you you can become extremely aware of how heavy your body weighs and even though you can overcome that it's a really distracting thing to have with mushrooms so i would say the the right substance um lsd tends to be much more stimulating for me like i'll get like jaw tension and stuff or like eye twitching if I'm, if I'm doing larger doses. So I never do larger doses of that, but that tends to be a better item for me for, for micro dosing for that same reason is that it's energizing. I would absolutely consider that a performance enhancing drug. I mean, that's, that's, I have no trouble calling substances that seem like drugs to me, calling them drugs. I mean, I'm someone that calls, that calls caffeine a drug. You know, I call nicotine a drug. I call, um, like pre-workout a drug. I mean, I, I call anything. L-tyrosine's a drug. It's like, so I would put all that stuff into the same thing. So I would say that fits the bill for, for a PED, but it, it wouldn't fit the bill for like USADA or WADA. What's the, the three standards? It has to be against the spirit of the, of the sport, or it has to give you an artificial, it has to give you a benefit, some kind of benefit. It has to, it has to pose a threat to the athlete. And it's like, it definitely wouldn't fall into the category of a, of a band, of a substance worth banning. But I'm not totally sure it's not appreciable amounts in your system anyway. So even if they wanted to test for it, I don't think they could if people wanted to get all hopped up on, on psychedelics for any number of events. I'm not sure if there is testing in there available or, or what the deal would be for that. Kind of thing. You talk flow state that wouldn't help in ultras. That's what I'm wondering. I think it would, I think it would, but the, the, I think there would be trade-offs if you did it with mushrooms. I think it would definitely help with LSD though. Like LSD has been, an amazing, an amazing like training stimulant for me. Just that same, that same kind of protocol every, every third or fourth day, but kind of to your, to your first question about like mechanism or, or what this is doing. Yeah. We don't totally understand. We know that it's related to the serotonin system. These molecules all look basically the same, whether it would be psilocybin or DMT or, um, mescaline or they're they're all working on the same system so whether we're talking about a a cactus or a mushroom or or a a chemical they're they're all dealing with the same system and it's less it seems less that it's stimulating and more that it's hyperplastic so it's making your brain pliable flexible and that's what's allowing you to kind of enter these these flow states as your it cuts down the the explanation floating around is that it, it decreases the activation your default mode network so that's the point of your brain. If, if you were to go into an fMRI and they had you read words and you just read colors, right? You just read red, blue, green, whatever. And then you read words that applied to you. You read words like runner or OCR or ginger or... What are you talking about? And if you, if you, if you read these words... Why did you say bald? <laughs> he said oh, shaved head. That was neat. <laughs> I don't actually know what's under there. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how fresh that shave is. Maybe it doesn't grow in. Maybe it does. But so if you if you were to read words with an fMRI and you were to identify with those words, the part of your brain that lights up that that tells you you're you and that says this is me, I'm identifying with these, 
that's your default mode network. And again, this is very poorly mis, you know, poorly understood stuff. And I'm not any kind of, you know, neurologist or, or that's, you know, I'm fine with tissue level and above. Certainly if it involves sweating, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it, but the, that's a little above my pay grade to really get in there. But basically you're, it, it decreases your sense of self. And so that's what allows you to get into these flow states. But the cool part about it is you're, you're dealing with neuroplasticity. So the, the more that you expose yourself to these ideas and the more homework that you're doing in between or after, the less you need the substance. So it could be something that you could do, you know, a shamanic dose at the beginning of your season, a, smart, a shamanic dose in the middle of your season, some microdosing for peak workouts. And then you would have no reason to, to roll the dice on nausea or anything like that on race day because the, the progress has already been made. You know, you spent so much time in that state that it's much easier to get in there again. And so that's, that's part of the appeal for me. I don't, I don't, I have no interest in, in drugs that make me faster. That that's, I don't know. That's definitely a shady gray area for me. If the idea that it would be making me faster outright, I don't know. That doesn't seem to, to stick with me. Right. But the idea of helping you put in that work and, and doing all of the work ahead of time. And then on race day, you know, you don't, you don't need anything in your system. You can abuse other drugs like caffeine. That's interesting. It's a, uh... Most runners, most athletes won't talk about what they put in their body if it's considered gray area by anyone. Yep. And like you said, schedule one, <laughs> you know, that that's gray area. Oh, totally. I mean, this, this morning, like I posted, I posted this this morning, nicotine lossages. I typically do patches, but they're not like, they don't hit me hard enough and like they're good. But it's, it's a similar idea. You know, the, the reason smoking is so addicting, it's, it's pretty terrifying when you dive down the literature on like nicotine versus smoking and all this stuff. But I think anything that you're, anything that you're taking to, to get ahead or get you out of bed or get you into the right mood, it, it's, it's a drug, right? I mean, it, it's all, it's all mm-hmm. kind of drugs to me, especially if it's psychoactive or especially if it's something that gives you withdrawals. You know, if you want to tell me that the average person isn't abusing the shit out of drugs, serious psychoactive drugs, and you drink coffee every day, you should stop drinking coffee tomorrow and see how you feel. Like, and then, and then tell me it's not a drug, right? So mm-hmm. these are, these are serious things that we're playing with. So like right now I'm totally decaf. I'm not doing any caffeine right now because you you get full tolerance in three days. It takes about eight days on rat studies to get rid of that tolerance. So that's kind of, you know, I'll probably do full one tolerance two. in three days. Yeah. That's what the, the study I lean on most often says full tolerance in three days. The athletic studies say, even if you use it every single day, you still get benefit. But that's kind of your same question. What about ultra running? The the dopaminergic response is gone very quickly. So when you drink coffee and you feel happy, that's gone very quickly. And I think we've all experienced that. You know, the first time you have an energy drink or the first time you have a caffeine pill or something, life is great. You know, the whole world smiles with you. And then you do it every day and it, it, doesn't, it just doesn't work the same. And so that's the first thing gone. So that kind of raises the question, just because my my whatever my 5k performance or my 800 meter performance might be peaked by using the same 300 milligrams caffeine or 200 milligrams caffeine every single day it's much nicer at 2 a.m to not only be awake but to also be happy when you're 70 miles into an event or 40 miles into an event or whatever it may be to also be happy so that's that's worth it to me to then use substantially less caffeine and make sure that and again i don't like the idea of being dependent or having a tolerance or anything like that and so i'm I'm rotating substances right now and I'm, I'm very meticulous about it. And 
you know, again, the dosages that I use are, are very, very small and it's super nerdy academic intrigue driving all of this. Is nicotine uh, sort of your filler when you go off of caffeine as your stimulant? So let's see, yesterday, yesterday was workout Wednesday. Yesterday I did, I did three miles at 50 mile race pace. And so yesterday I used, I used, I've heard, I've heard kratome is the right way to say this word. Kids say kratom, kratom. You see it at like head shops and stuff. It's a, it's a relative to the coffee plant and it acts on the opioid system. And so yesterday people will take like 30, 40, 60 grams to just get high and feel silly and, and take it as an opiate. But I did, I did about 1.8 grams of that yesterday. And that's a stimulant in those dosages. And so I did that, and that should have zero cross-tolerance of nicotine, zero cross-tolerance of caffeine. And this morning, I took two milligrams of nicotine, and then tomorrow will be a microdose day, and the following day will be an afterglow day. So, you know, Mormon sobriety, basically. And then the following day, we'll be right back on a kratome day, a nicotine day, and a microdose day. And I'm just going to do that until my workouts get zesty enough that I need caffeine, and then I'll put caffeine in that rotation. And then I'll fit it into a seven day week to fit like long runs with caffeine. And um, that's, it's kind of just a fun project. I mean, most people will just toss and wash pre-workout every single day. Right. And so it sounds really aggressive to have this like drug stack or, you know, I should probably have like a little pill case like baby boomers have. Right. And just have like a different day of the week with like different substances in there. But in reality, the amount that I'm doing is very, very small. We're talking the equivalent of about 50 milligrams of caffeine is about what I would equate it to for the the like target of what i'm dosing with these other substances and then when i start caffeine again it'll be just with a smart caffeine sub that has 50 milligrams caffeine so i won't really start abusing caffeine until race day do you have any have you used this process in the past yeah i had a really good block going and i ended up with some mystery injury um last last summer and it was like this exact rotation and so that's part of what I'm leaning on is some lesson learned and some modifications to not get the same mystery injury, but we never knew what was wrong with it. So maybe it was just dumb luck. But you never got to your big abuse caffeine on a race day moment. I never got there. Do you never. have any, any uh, qualms about potential systemic issues that that much caffeine that you're not used to could cause over the course of a race? No, I don't think so. It's never been a problem before. Like I did, that last 50K I did, I did 300 milligrams of caffeine, like two scoops of pre-workout with with some, you know, some additives in it. I mean, I, I go with like the, what, NSF, like the safe for sport stuff, just because, you know, God forbid. I, I don't know. I mean, clean sports, a far, it, it's a total farce anyway. I mean, to your point, like I'm the only one talking about what I'm putting in my body. <laughs> like, like I would love someone to pay for my own blood work. Like I've thought about just like drug testing myself just to show what's in my system. Cause it's like, there's, there's nothing in here that I'm not allowed to take, but there's a lot of fun going on here. It's like, this is a science project. You know, this is, this is, I respect the rules because the rules are what makes it fun. You know, it's like, you gotta have a rule book to, to play. Right. And is that, that statement's not entirely true that there's nothing in here. I'm not supposed to have. Well, according to who I'm, I'm talking like WADA, I'm talking like anti-doping. Yeah, narcotics are on there. Like, what kind of narcotics? I am fairly sure LSD is lumped in with cocaine and uh, and heroin and all those in that uh, in the certain schedule. No, for legality, I think. 
I need to look into that. I don't I don't think Wada has anything against against classic psychedelics. The the dosages are so are so small and the, the half life in your system is so quick. But Well now now you have me second guessing, but I thought L S D was lumped in there. It might be on one of those things where they tell you you shouldn't take it. Because, like, Kratom's on there um, that that you shouldn't take it, but it's not tested for, it's not illegal, it's not anything. They're just like, ah, we don't know about this, so maybe it's not safe. But there's there's no okay. rule saying you can't. I would imagine it's in the same category. And But, again, there's also no reason to do it in competition, really. I mean, you're, you're supposed to be doing your homework at home, and you should be able to compete on the same thing that everyone's on. So are, are, are there a number, like, are you part of like a subgroup of endurance athletes that, that practice and study this and tinker with this? Or are you kind of like a, a study of one right now? I don't actually know, man. Like, I think there's, there's gotta be people out there that want to, that want to explore everything at their disposal. I mean, th- th- certainly there have to be people at the top that have figured out truisms right that have, that have figured out better ways to do this i mean certainly i mean i have a lot of friends that are just so freakishly talented that it doesn't matter what they do i mean they're gonna win anyway because they're just mm-hmm. that good and of course those are the people that say no what i do works um talent doesn't exist you know all the people in my life that assert that talent doesn't exist are only the most talented people in my life i mean just just the they're the same people that say money doesn't matter yeah. Wealthy people say money doesn't matter. Talented people say talent's a myth. Yep. You mm-hmm. have to have an excess of it to disregard it. Yep. Yeah. And I've, I mean, I've called myself out for the same thing. Like I was just in the lab doing, doing phys data. And that's, that's something that I'll mention to people. It's like, ah, it's easy to say VO2 max doesn't matter when I can blow a 70 any week of the year. <laughs> it's like that, you know, if you already have it. Yeah. Same, same exact idea. But I, I will tell you, there's a lot of athletes. I mean, athletes, there were, there were a dozen athletes at the trials that I know have been open in person about, about mushroom use or classic psychedelic use in one way or the other. And, you know, Nike doesn't want to hear that. Like our Olympic trials don't want to hear that. Like that sounds, that sounds like you're, you're a couch bound drug user. You're like some, some pot smoking hippie or something. It's like, so it's largely under wraps, but I've, I can promise you there's, there's a lot of people out there. It's just, we're kind of on this, on this Renaissance where it's semi okay to talk about it, but still not, not if you're dealing with a big shoe contract or you're dealing with an Olympic birth or anything like that. So will change drastically in the next 10 years. To me, it begs the question, if you are this athlete who is exploring the concept of self and decoupling and doing it through psychedelics, and you're also a role model who runs a youth running group, what is your trickle down message? And at what age does it start? Well, I don't think I've ever had to lie to a kid. I don't think like that. That was that was a rule. That was like a founding pillar of my own youth program was all these parents are going to know me well. And if, if they ask me a direct question, I'm going to give them a direct answer. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, thankfully, no one, I've never had a 10 year old ask me about magic mushrooms or anything. It's just not even on the radar. So I've never been, been like cornered with that. But I, I do think that I'm planting the seeds with these kids to, to think for themselves in the sense that I will just, just my, my verbiage. I mean, just, just being like, oh, well, caffeine's a drug. 
well, well, what do you mean it's a drug? Drugs are bad. It's like, well, yeah, drugs, drugs can ruin your life. You know, there's a lot of stuff out there that is horrible, but you know, ask, ask your mom about not having coffee one morning. It's like, she has a headache, right? It's really rough. It's like just kind of this arm's length distance, but I can't say I've ever had that conversation. And I don't know. I don't know. Is your belief that it's harmful or that there is a detriment, any draw, potential drawback? I don't think so. So what, at what age does that become acceptable to start exploring? Uh, I'm not trying to trap you. Probably the later, the better. No, I like it, man. I dig it. It's juicy. Pro- probably the later, the better. I mean, my, you heard my timeline. I, mean, I was, I was mid to late twenties before I started doing all this. You're the, the cool part with these things, the things that make these substances medicine, right? Is that you are able to kind of integrate every part of your brain. And if you haven't specialized and you haven't done the homework, as I call it, if you haven't, if you haven't put in the work, there's nothing to integrate. You know, it, there, there's, 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 there's going to be trivial amount of value to that. And so you're really not going to have much to get out of it. It's, it's like writing a dissertation on everything you've learned as a middle schooler. You know, it's like you're not going to have anything of value to anyone, not even yourself. And so having you do have to have some life experience. You do have to, you do have, to have a lot of stuff in there. And with, with that in mind, I don't know. I would, I would assert mid twenties is a good age. Maybe a little, maybe a little later, you know, males brains take a little longer. I, I can't say there's waiting longer would ever be a bad thing. So. Well, I mean, decision-making process hasn't been confirmed to even be fully developed until mid twenties. Yeah. And if this is a decision-making substance, then it would be detrimental prior. I would be my assumption. Yeah. Yeah. I know there's, there's studies with native populations that use peyote in particular that I've seen where they'll have, you know, I, I've, I've been in a peyote ceremony where there was a very, very young kid, like dabbing little bits of this dried cactus and, and using it sublingual. And it's like the tiniest little amounts ever. And, but there's, there, there have been studies that, sh- that concluded no, no long-term concerns over huge populations. And these are populations that are using it a lot. And I don't, I don't remember the exact numbers and it, it, it really doesn't matter in the end of the day, but the mm-hmm. safety profile seems extremely, extremely safe. And there was a period, you know, in the sixties and seventies where these were the most researched substances in the world for like years, months and years. So th- these are things that we know a lot about. These are not, you know, like SSRIs. We know they kind of work. We don't really know why they work or how they work or what the long-term implications are. But that doesn't stop whatever it is, a massive portion of the portion of the developed world to be on SSRIs. So as far as a safety profile is concerned, I think it's about as safe as you can get. And again, as a runner, I'd rather compare it to alcohol because we can we can make the argument about legality. And obviously that's always going to be a concern, but that's changing very quickly. You know, they're de- they're decriminalizing these things in a lot of places. And so that, that, that conversation is going to change. And then people are going to be left with, well, do I take these now because they're legal and the government has my best, my best interest in mind, or are they still bad because they've told me they've been bad for the last 40 years. So Mm -hmm. I I would come back to the same example of alcohol because runners love alcohol and love getting wasted. You know, it's not, it's not just beer that runners like, it's like runners like to, to drink and to drink in excess on the whole, especially elite athletes, right? Like do everything in excess. And, you know, alcohol is a depressant. It's a poison. It's what we use to clean lab equipment. It's like you, you probably don't need to be putting that in your system. And so I would, I would wage, I would wage my, like my current stack that again, sounds pretty aggressive when I list it all out like that. 
against against anything that anyone's doing. You know, I I know I have a buddy that likes to reference. There was a there was a study, and I dove down it. It's okay, but they were they were inducing auditory hallucinations with people with dosages as little as three hundred milligrams of caffeine. And it's like, all right, if that doesn't stop you in your tracks, then maybe it should. <laughs> you know, that's that means there's a subset of the population that probably doesn't gain tolerance to caffeine. That's probably having auditory hallucinations from their venti Starbucks every day. It's pretty mm-hmm. serious. That's interesting. You've mentioned several times the uh, your consumption of calories and your the way that you try to look at everything in terms of how it can help your sense of self. What, what, does this extend to your calorie intake? Is your diet as meticulous as this, or is there, or is that more of a function of low overhead living? Um, I splurge on my food, man. Do you? I mean, I I do a lot of I do all of my animal products are you know, 80% or more of my animal products are, are grass fed. I do local high end when I can. I do, it kind of like factory farming kind of grosses me out. I'm, I'm probably teetering on veganism if I was any more grossed out about it. But thankfully I live somewhere where I can get, I can get local grass fed high end stuff. And it's as easy as going down to my local rancher and getting it for the same price. You can get it in the grocery store for the abused stuff. So I do definitely spend whatever I need to spend on my food. I think, I think food is, is definitely one other form of, of medicine, just like movement and sunshine and light and everything else that we do as, as humans. I think it sets you up for, for all kinds of stuff. And I've been playing with the low carb stuff since 2010, 2011. Um, so I do buy a few expensive things, you know I mean? I'm eating steak every night right now. So yeah, I, yeah, I do when I'm when I'm really really training heavy. I do what I call monk mode, which I'm realizing is awesome branding because people love it. Which is you get up at the same time every day, you live on the same schedule every day. So that you know, if you have a work schedule, then you're gonna have to parcel that off to do something in the same time window on the weekend. And you know, it's like right now I'm I'm up every day at eight fifteen. I'm running at nine fifteen. I'm open from about eleven thirty, which is how we scheduled this this podcast here. I'm open from about 1130 until about 430. And at 430, I start prepping for the evening session. And I'm literally getting up every day. I'm running on the same gravel road. It's all uphill and then turn around, come all downhill. And I'm eating the same foods in the same order. So it's like when we get off this call, it's going to be my sardine supreme, which is just this sardines and nutritional yeast and chia seeds and hemp hearts and, you know, olive oil. And this this like bolus of just like collagen and, and nutritional value just and, in a bowl with a spoon yeah it's actually pretty good it's, it sounds gross mashing it all together and it it doesn't look as amazing as it tastes but the i'll do all the dry ingredients in one like my my nuts and my salt and my nutritional yeast and everything and i'll mix it all together and put garlic in it mix it all together and then i'll put my sardines on top and then they get this like little breaded layer around them it's it's actually pretty bomb and so i'm eating the, the whole idea with the monk mode diet is that you're taking the foods that you've historically performed the best off of. So I have, you know, we talked about that in the intro that we have whatever, 20 years of running logs between us. And, you know, I have years and years and years of, of well, I'm going to try this every day and see how I feel this month. Or I'm going to try this before runs. I'm going to try this after runs. I'm going to see what, what does what. And so I have a pretty good grasp of stuff that's historically done me well. And then the idea is to just take all of these foods. I mean, we're talking like superfoods in the sense that if you fasted off of just that food, you could probably perform well. 
And I think sardines would fit the bill on there. You know, my, my dinner plate, that's, that's an egg and a little steak and some type of greens cooked, some type of greens raw, avocado. It's like that and some bell pepper for the vitamin C to help the iron absorption because it's all cooked on a cast iron skillet and leave my bell pepper raw to not ruin the vitamin C. It's like I put a lot of thought into each one of these things. And then this is all stuff that I really think any number of these, you know, any, any one of these items I could sustain my life off of, probably thrive off of, and I'm stacking them into every single day. And so every day is it's get up. I run on the same route at the same time, you know, with my dog or with training buddies. And, you know, some days are strides and some days there's a workout involved, but it's, it's that kind of repetitive. You're not thinking about it. It's totally automated. You just get up, you roll out and you do it. And the more automated you can make it, the less gritty it is. You know, I don't want to have to say, oh my God, it's 95 degrees this morning or in the winter it's, it's 15 degrees or whatever. It's just simply that you do it. If you do it every morning, then it, it takes the grit factor out of it. It takes the discipline factor out of it. And you just, you just put your life on repeat. And it's the same thing with the food. I mean, the, the idea that novelty, novelty is rewarded, right? If you eat chocolate cake today, and you eat chocolate cake tomorrow, and you eat chocolate cake the next day, it doesn't matter how much you love chocolate cake. At some point, you're going to be over it, and it's not going to be good anymore. And so taking these super nutrient-dense, satiating foods and putting them on repeat until I hate them because I've had them so many days in a row, I have experienced just transcendental places with this. And that's part of what first inspired me to start calling it monk mode is I think there's a reason that Zen monks in, in certain sects will avoid things like salt or spicy foods or any number of things that are considered just too stimulatory. And by doing the same thing every day, you're kind of detaching yourself from one more source of novelty or variety or enjoyment, which makes it sound like I'm some kind of sadist that's trying to take joy from everyone. But I think what that what that does is you will then find more joy. I think your joy point is probably relatively stable. So you'll end up finding more joy in the other things. So the foods that you we're kind of lukewarm about suddenly taste better or the routes suddenly it's, you realize these trees or this smell or this dirt or just some, some new thing of doing the same thing every single day until you notice the tiny ripples on your very still water of your life. There's, there's magic in that. And so, yeah, right now it's, it's, it's like monk mode. So the food is absolutely as meticulous as anything. I mean, it's, it's extremely meticulous. I want to ask you an unfair question. Um, and yeah, sounds good, right? Just to compare like the efficacy of food versus psychedelics to understand how important you feel both are. So for just like a sake of conversation, if it was Mm -hmm. donuts and pizza, but you could keep your psychedelic stacks and rotate and do all that, that, or you took all that away, but you could eat meticulously and do exactly what you wanted nutritionally what do you find would be the most beneficial for your long-term athletic performance and why? I would definitely keep the food. The food's, the food, the food's absolutely first. Well, and there's a, kind of the ace in the hole here is I've already, done, I've already done the work with the psychedelics, right? I mean, even if I had to give up caffeine and, and like whatever, nicotine this morning or whatever, even if I had to give up, if I had to give up pre-workout stacks for things, it would still be worth it to feel to feel robust and just health and wellness first, you know, when in doubt, I think, I think health and wellness first. And the idea that I would put like a pre-workout, you know, 
that I that I would prioritize tossing and washing some pre workout back before before some race pace work over just eating nutritionally dense food is I think that's something that people run into. People want the like sexy workouts. They want the supplement. They want this, the, you know, the stimulants before they work out or they want, they want the fancy hydrogels, which like Morton's awesome. I'm not crapping on hydrogels, but it's like, you know, they, they want the icing on the cake and they're not worried about the ingredients that go into the cake itself. And I think that that building the base, that health and wellness is really, you know, you can't, you can't compete if you're sick. You can't compete if you're injured. You can't compete if you're unhealthy or at least not perform to your potential if you're unhealthy. And so that's, that's what the food is. The food's absolutely non-negotiable. Okay. Well, we just spent so much time talking about the stacking of maybe uh, drugs or stimulants that I just wanted to, I was thinking that was what you were going to say, but I just wanted to make sure that was your, your nutrition first. uh, And I agree with that. I was just curious. Yeah. If I didn't feel like I already had the shoe rotation down, like, like I know my vitamin D levels are high. My zinc levels are high. Like I have done all the groundwork, you know, my sleep is as refined as I can possibly get it. It's like, I have done all the health and wellness and the groundwork that I can possibly do. And I am, I am severely serious about my health and wellness game. And so now I get, I get to play with the fun stuff. You know, I get to play with the stuff that people want to write articles about or, or talk about on a podcast. You know, it's, it's the juicy stuff. Nobody wants to talk about, and then I cracked open my 300th can of sardines in 300 days. It's like, that's not sexy. It's not marketable. You know, it's the truth, but yeah. I mean, you just wrapped up endurance community in like one little paragraph there. It's, we want to worry about the sexy toppings rather than building the cake correctly. Yeah. So, I mean, the natural lead into me is tell me how you build your cake running wise. Uh, most people that we talk to actually cannot give us their their running theory, their training theory, the why they do what they do. What is your, you know, if I, if I use talk to elevator pitch, what's your elevator pitch on training? People give us a lot of different uh, hemming and hawing and not really knowing why they do. I get the sense that's not you. So I want, I want you to help me with some knowledge. So the why or the how? Both. I want, I want to hear the what and the why. I think the, the, my, my why is curiosity. I really, as much as I, as I stray from that and explore other options and, and well, maybe I want to compete and maybe whatever. I'm curious. I mean, I'm, I am, I'm not really competitive. Like I'm competitive kind of with myself, I guess, but it's more curious as to, is this going to work or is this not going to work or did this work or did this not work? That's such a larger driving factor for me than even bettering my own time and way more. I mean, beating other people is like not even on the radar and probably to my detriment. I mean, I, I love a few people in my life because they are, you know, like Joe Gray gave me one, we were training together one time. Like he's, he's a stud, you know, I took a picture with him afterwards. Like, we've won 20 national champs between the two of us, you know, no one needs to know it. Only two of them are mine. <laughs> and it's like that dude, he's like, you know, I just get into a race and I'm, I'm not going to roll over for you. You know, and it's like, I just, that, it's not even on my radar. I'm like, man, that guy's having a good day. That's pretty cool. I'd like to know what shoes he's wearing. You know, it's like, maybe, maybe he's sharper than me. I'd like to see his enzyme data. It's like, I'm, I'm infinitely curious with all this stuff. And that's, that'll get you into trouble, right? It's like, that's, well, how little do I need? How much can I need? How much can I do? It's like, curiosity is, curiosity is dangerous, but. Are you constantly tinkering your training? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, so you don't have like a, here are my hard and fast rules of training. 
there's hard and fast rules, but they ah, they're we'll start with those. Steady. They're steady rules. They're steady okay. rules. The the things that would be the hardest to convince me otherwise, I guess we could start there. Yeah, your core is, pillars. Like building a base, building a true aerobic base. And I I mean no sexy intervals, no like that doesn't even need core and hip work. I mean that's that's as simple as you know, a minimal pair of shoes and a soft, a, a semi-soft giving surface and a crap ton of miles. And that's that's it. I mean, I, I really believe that most people could rotate their shoes. So a different pair of shoes, every run, you know, at least every, you know, maybe every fourth run, you're wearing the same pair of shoes. It's like that, that's a slightly different surface, a slightly different gait, a slightly different, you know, slightly different mechanics. You got a nice wall of shoes behind you there. You can appreciate that. You're the way that you run the feedback that you get, you're even your emotional state, right? And when you're in a vulnerable, minimal shoe, you feel differently than you do when you're in a, a, beefy stack height, you know, carbon fiber, poppy backs kind of like fancy shoe. You know, if you're, if you're doing a trail run in a minimal pair of smooth shoes, you are vulnerable and you're, you're prancing. You're not, you're not conquering wilderness like you would in a, in a pair of speed goats by Hoka or something like clunky with good lugs on it. And your, your whole brain's different. And so there's, there's this slight subtle change, but then there's the mechanical part of it. Obviously I think you're less likely you hear people talk about you know, sometimes you run on sidewalk and sometimes you run on track and sometimes you run on gravel or grass or whatever, and it stops you from getting injured because you're getting different surfaces. The variety of a shoe, the difference between a Hoka and like a Skinner or like a Luna sandal or something is huge, right? It's massive. And so that's a, that's a whole different, a whole different ball game that people, that people underestimate, I think is just shoe rotation and shoe rotation and getting in the volume. And those kind of feed each other where if you're getting in a lot of volume, you need a lot of shoe rotation or you'll get injured. And that's, I mean, that's, that's the base of my pyramid probably. And the, the next step up from that would probably be sleep, light exposure, you know, like I'm a big advocate for my infrared sauna, um, but sun exposure, vitamin D, uh, all those, all those kind of like real basic things. And it, it's hard not to clump all those together because as an athlete, you have to train, you know, the, the training is non-negotiable. You have to do some type of training, but also the health and wellness is equally non-negotiable. And so it's, it's sleep, light, the, the basics. Those would be the hardest thing to convince me otherwise. Beyond that, I mean, the, the next thing that I would incorporate with people is strides. I think strides are grossly underestimated for, for neuromuscular fitness, for running economy, if you are putting in that volume already, then your your training quality might drop because you're putting in volume. And you just want to run easy. You're tired. And that's fine for most people, for most purposes. I think you could do 80% of your genetic potential at almost any given race off of base strides. And then depending on the event, like some tempo work or some type of race-specific work, you know, spending time in the mountains, spending time on the track, spending time, whatever, whatever it may be, that's race-specific for you. Or obviously with OCR stuff, you're going to have to, you're going to have to add that extra aspect to it. So we're not talking about OCR or triathlon or anything specific here, but it's the base. I think people screw that up and it takes a long time. I've, I've kind of professed that if you, if you haven't done 70 miles a week for six weeks in a row, you don't even know if you like running. Like you don't even know if you're good. You, you, you don't even know if you're talented or not. You could be a freak and you don't even know because you've never put in that kind of work. And it takes at least that much to even know. So I think whatever it takes to get you to that point, health, wellness, sleep, shoes, any of that, you need to get to that point before you start worrying about, oh my God, 60 by 400 or this like super secret 
30 second hill repeat and Tabata intervals and like all this, all this stuff. Or, you know, Anthony took two milligrams of nicotine this morning. I'm going to try nicotine for my morning run. It's like, dude, last, you did 35 miles last week and you did 85 the week before and you did zero the week before that. It's like, you should fix that stuff first. And then, then we put the icing on the cake. I like that. Pretty straightforward. Those are the principles we, uh, we kind of talk about, I, I want to ask a specific question regarding that. If we, if base is king, which I agree, you know, the bigger your base, the higher your pyramid can be built ultimately. Right. So um, let's say you have a race six months out that you're planning to crush. It's the only thing you really care about. I know you're not a big, huge planner sometimes, but like, you know, one race, like when, do, how long does that base phase last for you? And then when do you decide, okay, now it's time to maybe do a little more sharpening is that part of your thought process and what would a timeline look like that on like a big race let's say six months out yeah so one of the things i did with COVID, i mentioned i got this mystery injury in my lower leg that mm-hmm. eventually we addressed we still never knew what was wrong with it and it took me out for i don't even know like nine weeks as long as i've ever been out of running and i trained my face off one, like aqua jogging, step mill, anything I could do. I mean, I was, I was doing three hour days still. So I lost, I lost zero fitness. So that's, that's a good segue into saying, I don't ever lose touch with my base. And if I, if I take a two week taper and then I race, that race is some serious stimulus. So if I take two weeks down to just, I'll, I'll let myself go for a run, but I'm not allowed to train for the next two weeks. And then from there, it'll be like one week to spin the legs where I do, you know, 60 or 70 miles a week. And then I've been doing three weeks at 100 and then six to eight weeks maybe at 120. That's kind of my sweet spot where I've settled. I might dip a little bit above 120, maybe 140 a few times this training block. We'll see. I, I definitely handle it mechanically. I just, I'm just i not totally sure if it's given me much more benefit than, than just sneaking in an extra session or doing more core and hip work or doing some like passive training like sauna and cold exposure and things like that. So you know, looking at it just that way, that would be two weeks, two weeks casual post, you know, a post season, if you will, and three weeks at a hundred for a preseason or a week before that. So whatever, four weeks of a preseason and then a six to eight week in season. What got me injured during COVID, I had that, I had a race that was whatever, four months out and said, all right, this is the only race that I'm going to get. So I'm, I've never actually done longer than whatever, six or eight weeks at a, at the same high volume maybe it'll help me more. And there's only one way to find out. And I'm never going to get another chance where there's no races. It's never going to be worth it. Instead of doing six weeks race, six weeks race, which I know works well, it's never going to be worth it again to do 14 weeks straight at whatever it was, 120 or 140 or whatever I was trying. And sure enough, week like 11 or something, I just had this mystery shin injury that just flared up and, and knocked me out for however long it was. And so that was clearly, I'm, I'm concluding from that, that it was too long. So I would rather with six months, I would rather see two full training blocks than I would rather see a 12 week block in a race and a 12 week block in a race to fit that same format I'm saying, which is, yeah, like two weeks down, one week, real casual, three weeks, serious, you know, like monk mode light is what it's been right now, where I'm eating the same staples for lunch and eat the same thing for dinner. But outside of that, the diet, I can, I can graze, you know, if I want a Snickers bar, I can get me a Snickers bar. You know, it's like, it's not total lockdown on my life. If somebody wants to go out, I can go out. And then once we get into the heavy training, 120 or plus for that, it's going to be seven weeks, this training block, then it's like total lockdown monk mode. And so that puts us at 
yeah, 10 weeks of training, two weeks down, that's a, that's a 12 week block plus a two week taper. That's a 14 week training cycle. So I would rather see someone do, especially in the ultra world, I think people neglect a lot of stuff. I think a, a fun thing to do as a coach is to take somebody's lineup and look at their 5k time and project other race times off of there using like a Daniels formula with a little bit of my own, you know, informed finesse. Cause I get a good feel for athletes. I'm really good at guessing fitness for whatever reason and projecting race results and, and guessing paces and stuff. And so looking at their 5k, project their whole wall of paces, look at their marathon, project their whole wall of paces, look at their 10k and look at, find a spot in there where it's, you know, Hey man, your 10k pace, your 10k PR is faster than your 5k PR, you know, or your marathon PR is faster than your half marathon PR, which is also faster than your 10k PR. We're going to run a 10k and a half. So you can put them into something and just kind of like bullseye these little weak spots in their, in their, their past for sure, but probably in their fitness as well. And you're going to unlock some things mentally and some like probably some central governor stuff to suddenly have a, a slightly different challenge. And it, it sparks some zest for it then too. So if I had six months for an A race right now in my life, which is, I have a pretty long block this block and I'm going to race on September 11th. And then I'm just going to hold on to fitness and do 50 mile specific stuff until October 2nd, when I'm going for a fast 50 at the Hennepin, Hennepin 50 in Illinois. And so I'll have most of my volume training will be done by the time that I race that marathon. And then I'm just going to annihilate myself with this marathon. It's a big downhill marathon, just massive overspeed and just beat up my legs. And I'm convinced that with the training that I can put in between now and then just specific stuff that I can, I can come out of that being fresh. But with that in mind, I'm going to race into fitness. I'm really not going to do a lot of real sharpening stuff. I'm going to be doing race pace work to get, to get ready for those races and then I'm going to let those races be my big, you know, my big stimulus sessions. Okay. I was curious, like you said, workout Wednesday, for example, yesterday was workout Wednesday. I guess I just didn't know. I was, it seemed like you were alluding to the fact that you did a lot of like steady miles and not a lot of the flashy stuff that everybody likes to get off on. Right. It's not, Is that, it's not. So, so you're not doing a lot of that. You're doing a lot of running. Like you're going running. Yeah. Right? And not so, much specifics within that sometimes. Even workout Wednesday, I mean, that's that's uphill strides, you know, five by 10 seconds at 490 watts or whatever, gone uphill on a gravel road. So, so hard, serious strides, but, and then three miles at goal, 50 mile pace. So it's like, that's, that's not even a workout. I mean, mo- most people would train day in, day out at 50 mile race pace. I mean, more, I think more is shown by the fact that that's a workout than that is actually shown in that workout, right? I, mean, I think there's more implied for how easy my training is than implied about how that workout was paced, that every other day is not 50-mile race pace or 50-mile race effort or any anywhere close. And so it's a lot of, yeah, it's just going for runs and running with friends and running with my dog and sweating and, and having fun and, and using the run, especially this early in the season, to kind of structure other health and wellness things. So it's, it's using that run to get my morning light, get my vitamin D, and I'll sauna beforehand and I'll soak in my, I have a freezing cold ice runoff, you know, mountain runoff in the backyard. It's like, I'll soak in there immediately after the run and then I'll get back in the sauna and having, having all those things tethered to that run is, is almost as important as the run. I mean, maybe as important as the run right now, this far out from, from the goal race. Makes sense to me. Yeah. It's interesting to me because you do almost opposite of what a lot of, even training camps, what you have you do where you go after your three week kind of rebuild, you go up to 100 for a couple of weeks and then your max volume you hold until you taper. 
Whereas yeah. a lot of people would come out of their base phase, get up to 120 for extended time and then cut down to 100 and ramp up workouts and then taper. You seem to cut out that third stage or fourth stage entirely. Yeah, I think I, I think I respond to, to kind of sharpening without, you know, like Jack Daniels, right? Is that, is that, who, is that the sharpening freshening? That was Daniels, right? I think it was. Well, that, that's just like his ideas, like that some athletes need, some athletes will need to reduce the volume, whereas some athletes can just crank the intensity. And I can definitely just, my, my volume will actually, the time spent training will drop. So even though my volume is 120 all the way to race day, my time spent training will drop by probably 20% or maybe 30% between right now or like this first week at 120 and the last week at 120. Because instead of 830 miles or 930 miles or whatever it is, I'm shuffling around the mountains on the trails, I might have predominantly, you know, I might have two sessions where I'll have 10 to 15 miles at, at 540 pace and then a race on the weekend and then, and then some, you know, crazy caffeinated long runs where I'm just hammering a little bit for no reason or for no prescribed reason. And so it will, it will undulate or it will probably match what people are used to when you actually think in terms of time on my feet and maybe even in terms of intensity as, as fitness comes on and I start bringing carbs back in and certainly an RPE, like rate of perceived exertion, because I'm going from, you know, zero caffeine to suddenly having caffeine and going from not race shoes into, into like a pair of alpha flies, which is what I'm going to race in. And everything's periodized. And so when the carbs are periodized and the drugs are periodized and the shoes are periodized and the, the lifestyle is periodized, it, it's a little bit more aggressive than it looks, I think, or than it sounds when it's like that. Yeah, that, that does make sense. Now, my last question about your training then is you talk about how you're running up a gravel road indefinitely on each run, and then you just come back down. Yeah. Are you coming back down the way you go up or are you just rolling with the hill? And is that a little bit of that speed work turnover drill work in disguise every single run? It could be. So I've been, I've been really playing with the power meter. So I've I've got a nice version two stride. So that'll tell me, even though I think I'm, even though I'm running, you know, nine minute pace up this gravel road, I'm putting out 250 Watts, which on a flat track might be six, 10 a mile. You know, so there is some sneaky, some sneaky work being done here. It's not mm-hmm. as, it's not as profoundly unsexy as I like to say that it is. It, it, there is probably some sneaky work getting done out there, but yeah, I, I come, I go up the same way that I come down, and I think there's value in that. Even I mean, I, I'm, I'm almost doing things on purpose to make them monotonous, you know, and so I'm going up this gravel road, and you know, at a hundred a week, I'll do eight in the mornings. At 120, I'll do ten to twelve in the mornings, but it's straight shot up unbroken uphill um what 200 210 feet average a mile and it's 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 pretty much unbroken i mean it doesn't roll at all and you just go up 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 you turn around down 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 and that's another day and so early in the training block it'll be uphill strides twice a week mixed into there on the gravel and i've been playing with running the running pods by egg weights you guys seen those they're little like i don't actually have a oh here we go yeah this little like half pound little half pound weights that are just super ergonomical and uh, rubbery. And so I've been playing those to sneak a little intensity in there. And as long as you like really focus on the drawing back with power and and the forward is just relaxing, then they kind of just critique your form. It's not that it's really making it harder. It's just more of a, more of a mindful critique of the, of the running form. And so that adds a little bit of variety, but it's, that's it, man. I mean, it's, it's gravel road, uphill, downhill, come home, soak, sauna, 
Are you just a fantastic downhill runner by the end of these blocks? I can hold my own. I think I'm actually disproportionately good at running nice runnable uphills from doing this. Okay. But it's odd. Like I've, I've done blocks where I'm able to, you know, where I'm able to train somewhere flat. Like I was in Hawaii, had flatter options or, you know, spend a lot of time in Phoenix and have flatter options. And I don't think I actually get faster over the ultra stuff. I think I would over a half or over a full, it would be, it would be necessary to do that. But this kind of slow grinding and, and just mellow paces makes me so durable. There, there's something going on with just the, with just the unbroken uphill and just settling into that grind that just makes me so much more durable. And I don't really have, you know, I've, I've read, I, I read everything I can get my hands on, like, but I've read, I, I think every major running coach's, you know, favorite book or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like a lot. I don't really have an explanation for why this works. I just know that it does. And it's, it's kind of liberating as someone with so much hard science interest to just be like, fuck it. Like, I, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter why it works. It doesn't matter how it works. All that matters is that it works and it's consistent and it works every time. So there's, there's some truth there with a capital T that I can't explain or can't, you know, bottle and distribute to the world quite yet. But I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever figure it out, but I know that it works. You made a post the other day on your Instagram, basically inviting the public to come live at your house and train with you. It was basically like, hey, I'll house you if you want to come and vibe with me up here in the mountains. And if you feel like throwing a donation, I need a new treadmill. So something like that. But the point being is, uh, what, what can somebody like, like you really seem to have open arms to someone who wants to maybe learn from you or train with you or just vibe or understand your your methodology or your day or just get to know you. So like, how does that all look? This open invite, I mean, an open public invite, isn't something everybody throws around. What does that look like? I know more than 18,000 people have seen that video or exposures to that video, according to Instagram. And I only have like six people confirmed for this season. So, you know, I, I might as well invite everyone because I'm, I'm kind of just giving them a chance to be called on their own bullshit. Maybe there's part of that. And the other part of it is like, I, I do think that this is, this can be such a selfish endeavor and I have fought tooth and nail to be able to like, just, just sustain my life here. Right. And to, to have all the things that I need, like to have my, my luxurious, you know, ice runoff in the backyard and my badass infrared sauna. And it's like, it doesn't cost me anything to share that with everyone. And if I would have had an opportunity like that when I was 18, oh man, I would have, I would have asked how much rent was for a month or six months or the rest of my life in a place like this. And so I would like to offer that because it doesn't, it really doesn't take anything away from me. It makes me more accessible. And I I think I have this idea that the athlete, it's, it's kind of curtailing off of that same idea of the athlete that you owe people just for your space here, right? It's the, it's the Muhammad Ali business model. It's it's the idea that what, what's, what's the quote that you're, that service to others is the rent you pay for your space on earth. I, I really believe that. And I, I worry that that's the kind of thing, like I said earlier, that's the kind of thing that keeps me up at night. It's like, am I doing enough? You know? And I think there's something so enriching about just getting a bunch of people together and, you know, iron sharpens iron and just getting people together and just raging and, and sharing some wisdom. And there's certainly some people that are coming here to, 
to train. And, you know, if, if they can, if they can beat me on one of my days when I'm doing pace work, they're going to, they're going to feel like they're getting somewhere, right. They're going to feel like that's got some competitive flow to it. But by and large, I want people to see that this is not, this is pro, this is unprofound. You know, this is something that anyone can do. I don't, I don't like that ultra runners want to be freaks. I think we're normal. I think this is, we could, we could normalize this and people would just accept the average person can go out and bang out a hundred miles if they wanted to. And by putting myself available to people, I think more and more people can see that, that, you know, I'm a human being and people can come here and see that it's not, there's, there's nothing sexy. There's no smoke and mirrors here. And it's just, it's just great. I mean, I, I certainly, you can see how I benefit from it. You know, it'll, it'll give me training buddies for a season and, and I got two media guys that are going to be spending a lot of time here this summer. So that'll, that'll be really good. And we'll just, we'll just dive in deeply. So what that actually looks like logistically, I had some wooden furniture in my front room and I had this fugly carpet and this horrible paint job and I, I scrubbed it and painted it and, um, I got to get the furniture out of there now. I'm putting in two triple bunk beds in there and it, I'm just going to keep those open. I mean, if, if people like the idea, I, you know, right after this training block, I'm kicking everybody out on September 19th, but right after that, after October 2nd, I'll be right back in and I'll be training for JFK. So there's no reason to think that I won't have an open invite to anybody that wants it between October 15th and November 15th again. So I just, I think it's fun for me and it's fun for people. And it's something that I wish would have existed. I mean, I'm, I'm like, you know, I did, I did host a a kid from the front range that was, what was he 14 or 15 last year, 15, I guess that just came out here and trained for like two weeks. And it's like, I, if I thought about it, I would resent him for how freaking awesome that is. (laughs) Like it wasn't even real. You know, like, like I said at the start at the onset here, like I, would have loved someone to hold my hand and say, this is how I do it. This is how I don't starve. You know, I don't owe anybody anything and I don't have anything and it's great. This is how, this is how you make it work. And I I would have loved that. And so some of it is that kind of giving back, but there's plenty of selfish reasons to do this. I mean, it's, it's awesome. It's good exposure. Everybody wins. You can, you can give each other love on social media and you can, you can post up a storm and you can take pictures together and you can, you can, have somebody to pass your easy miles with, especially if it's just another day of doing an easy eight to 10 for that's it. All I have to do is get the miles in. I mean, junk miles, most people would call them. And that no that, such that, thing, no such thing. I agree. So all are welcome. And you turned your, and you yeah. turned your living room into a giant bedroom. Oh, they got, it's, it's a room. It's a back room. We got like 1300 square feet here. So it's, it's not too crammed, but people can park a van here. People can post up in my, in my living room. Um, both my bedrooms are open right now. So I actually have, um, Miguel and Joanna, that's ultra house Phoenix. It's like a million degrees down there. So they're going to stay here for a few weeks. Nice. Well, Anthony, we're at the end of our time here. Anything you need to get out to people, any people you want to thank any, any last minute tidbits you got to get out there, man. I feel like I, I feel like I rambled enough for everybody on here, but you know, obviously Check me out on Instagram. Um, I keep I keep a Patreon. We'll put all that stuff in in show notes. And um, yeah, guys, thanks for thanks for taking the time and giving me a little bit of a platform here to kind of riff. And thanks for the questions. It's good. I, I like the harder the better, man. It, it, if anything, I'll listen to it in a year, and with with enough luck, I'll look back and be like, man, that dude didn't know shit. Like I hope I'm embarrassed. <laughs> I hope I'm embarrassed of this in two years. You know, hopefully I can make that much growth. 
So. I will say I will say you're an interesting follow on Instagram, and and if that's a platform you're using to spread the the knowledge and the love and have people come out and visit you, worth a follow on there. I just kind of peruse. I was like, oh, this guy's got interesting stuff going on. So it's a good start. It's definitely real. I mean, you heard my shtick on that, so it's it's definitely real. I'm I'm ready to be wrong. I don't. I'm never going to be one of those people that that digs my heels in if somebody tells me that I'm a jackass or I'm doing something wrong. I mean, I'm. I definitely want to put ideas out there to test them and to see if I can possibly articulate them and, and chase harder ideas. And, you know, hopefully we'll all get a little closer to the truth here. I love it. Well, thanks for coming on. Thanks for being forthcoming and we'll revisit We'll we'll come back in a year or so and, and give the, the 2.0 version. Give a critique. That sounds good, man. Thanks for having me on guys. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Talk to you later. Mm-hmm.